Now, the reason we are here today in this room with H5N1, highly pathogenic influenza, and we're not in this room discussing so many of the other gain-of-function research that we do, and we're not in this room discussing so many of the other gain-of-function research that we do, is because naturally occurring HPAI, H5N1 viruses cause a reported almost 60% mortality in humans, which triggered a concern, understandably, clearly, that if you give a gain of function of a pathogenic virus to make it more transmissible, that's a whole different story than some of the other things we faced. So let's get down to what happened very briefly. You know historically, and I'm going to go very quickly through the historical perspective that brought us here today. There were studies done by two NIH, NIAID-funded investigators, Ryan Fouché and Yoshi Kawaioka, in which H5N1, a strain from Indonesia and a strain from Vietnam, were altered in a gain of function, in which H5N1 were altered in a gain of function, altered in a gain of function, either by direct mutation or by reassortment were altered in a gain of function, either by direct mutation or by reassortment. And by passage in ferrets, the mammal model for this virus, for humans, there was an increase in, in fact, an, a, an, a, a, a development of aerosol transmissibility in a mammal which this particular virus did not have. There was a development of aerosol transmissibility, a development of aerosol transmissibility in a mammal which this particular virus did not have. Because of that, this triggered concern. This was after the experiments had been done and after they had been submitted to the journals. And from this uh, press statement, we put it before our National Science Advisory Board for Biosecurity here at NIH, which is representative and advisory to the entire department of HHS as well as to other agencies. And the conclusion was made, and this is critically important for us to understand, and I, and I take this right out of the statement that came from the NSABB, that due to the importance of the findings to the public health and research communities, the NSABB recommended that the general conclusions highlighting the novel outcome be published, but the manuscript did not include methodologic and other details that could enable replication of the experiments by those who would seek to do harm, enable replication of the experiments by those who would seek to do harm, by those who would seek to do harm, what also was discussed that might accidentally be released, that might accidentally be released, that might accidentally be released, so it is not just people who would deliberately do harm. As Sally mentioned, following that, there was an explosion 
of reaction, sometimes bordering on the very extreme, as shown by this editorial from the New York Times, an engineered doomsday. This is just one, but as some of you may recall, there was a lot of activity talking about worst case scenarios where the world might be destroyed. In that setting, the influenza community voluntarily imposed upon themselves a pause of 60 days from January 2012 on any research involving highly pathogenic avian influenza virus leading to the generation of viruses that are more transmissible in mammals. That was supposed to be a 60-day, and as you know, the moratorium is still in place, the voluntary moratorium on the part of the investigators. But soon thereafter, there began to be an open discussion clarifying that research in different fora outside of the NSABB. The NIH and the CDC, because we do similar work, also agreed that we, in our own intramural investigators, we would refrain from uh, these types of experiments and essentially abide by the moratorium that was signed on by a significant number of our extramural investigators. And I'm talking about the investigators at NIAID and other institutes as well as the CDC. From there came open discussion. Many of you remember the meeting in Geneva in February of 2012, where importantly new data were presented and even more importantly original data was substantially clarified which led that group, which was predominantly influenza people, with a consensus to delay publication, but ultimately to publish them after there had been some more emphasis and discussion of safety, public health, and communication issues. But also, they recommended to extend the moratorium in order to have further discussion, as well as reaffirming the PIP agreement. Then back in the United States, what happened was a series, as you can see from the dates on these, of open discussions in, in different forum. There was a meeting sponsored by the ASM on biodefense, shown here, the people who were a part of the panel, myself included, Bruce Alberts of Science, Mike Osterholm of the NSABB, and Ron Fouché, one of the investigators. And we discussed openly the situation of the publishing of these data and the experiments that would be performed. The NSABB re-met the next month, and they examined the revised manuscripts with the clarification of data, and they voted unanimously to have Kawaioka manuscript be communicated in full, and in the 12th to 6th decision, also that the Fouché manuscript be communicated after appropriate scientific review and revision, which, as you'll see in a second, actually occurred. Then we had a National Academy of Science workshop where we looked at the lessons learned. Where did we, how did we get to where we were and what do we need to do in the future to proceed in a responsible manner? The next day, the publication of the manuscripts occurred as shown here in the Nature and Science titles. But the discussion continued and one of the questions that was asked by the investigators since this was a voluntary moratorium on their part, is how long is this moratorium going to go on and what are really going to be some of the guidelines that we could actually follow on the basis of this. We at NIAID, being the major funders of most but not all of these people, 
We obviously were connected to that because they wanted to know, since you're our major funders, what kind of research will you fund? There was a major meeting of the Centers of Excellence for Influenza Research and Surveillance this past summer at the end of July and the beginning of August. And as many of you know, I went up there to address the group. And what I recommended is that they continue the moratorium, but that we have the opportunity to discuss in an open fashion that is not only influenza researchers, but people like yourselves. And in fact, the transcript edited of my discussion at the Sears was recently published in Ambio, in which I referred to this workshop. And I said the meeting participants would consider the general principles concerning the rationale for risks and benefits of such experiments and what lines might be drawn in their conduct and the reporting back and forth with the funding agencies. And so here we are. And this is the workshop that I was referring to that will take place today and tomorrow. And the purpose from the standpoint of, and I'm speaking from a pure research standpoint, is to review the key issues related to the gain of function of these viruses, scientific public health, biosafety, biosecurity, and importantly for the decisions we have to make now is the considerations of the possible criteria for funding by HHS, IE, NIH, CDC of gain-of-function research on highly pathogenic avian influenza. As you know, there's a draft framework that Harvey referred to that we will be discussing in detail and you'll have the opportunity to comment on to guide funding decisions. And that's the critical point I want to make from the standpoint of the NIH about this gain-of-function research. Now, just to put it in perspective, are we talking about a major chunk of what we do? No, as a matter of fact, this is relatively small because the research gain of function of transmissibility, et cetera, on H5N1 highly pathogenic is a very minor part, but an important part of our portfolio. It's part of four flu research projects that contain this. It's around 10% of the entire H5N1 portfolio and less than 1% of the total NIAID flu research funding but it has triggered a very important question. Now, I want to close on these last two slides because I believe it's important that you keep this in consideration. First of all, questions have come up about the concern of the danger of people that you fund. NIAID, NIH, certainly CDC, only funds and conducts gain-of-function research on H5N1 highly pathogenic avian influenza viruses for researchers who are highly trained, skilled, experienced, and adequately regulated. This issue has not been a major concern about the investigators, certainly the ones that I just mentioned, who clearly fall into that category. That was not the concern. The concern was that the products or information that were generated by these experiments might be used by others in a way that could harm society, either carelessly in an unregulated fashion by inexperienced people or even by deliberate misuse. Now, there are some disagreements, and we've heard them in the broad discussion in those months that went from the time of the moratorium until now, 
There's disagreements as to the scientific and or public health value of these experiments. But I believe the people who feel that they shouldn't be conducted are in the minority. But I believe the people who feel that they shouldn't be conducted are in the minority. But I believe the people who feel that they shouldn't be conducted are in the minority. Did anyone ask you or me? Are we the over 6 billion people known as the general public? What you call the minority? Did anyone ask the entire human population of Earth if these potentially deadly, completely anti-nature, anti-scientific, gain-of-function, dual-use studies should continue to be done? Is this the first time you've even heard of this? Because even the most concerned members of NSABB felt that the experiments should be done, but the distribution of the knowledge should be restricted. Now here comes the rub. As of today, there is no mechanism to provide restricted access to information regarding research funded by NIH. So if NIH funds a grant, it is assumed that the results will be published. The only mechanism for restricted access is classification right now. NIAID does not, nor will we fund or do, classified research. So really the fundamental question with regard to our involvement is, and, and the discussion in general, is the issue is the risk to global health of the work that we fund, the risk of not funding that research versus the risk to the global health of the information harming society. That really is the critical question. So therefore, even though, as Harvey said, there are going to be no conclusions or consensus, from our standpoint, the question is, should or should we not fund this research? And that's the thing that we're going to be concentrating on in the discussions that occur. Thank you very much. Oh, riddle me this. When has Dr. Fauci spoken about this gain-of-function, dual-use bioweapon research on SARS, MERS, flu, and apparently every other viral disease known to man in any of his 2020 public speeches and reports, standing right next to President Trump regarding this man-made SARS-2 COVID-19? Good morning, everyone. Um, by way of introduction, I'm Amy Patterson. I've had the pleasure of emailing many of you in the room. In, in a phrase, we are here because of scientific responsibility. And while collectively we bring a broad, diverse range of expertise, from infectious disease expertise, epidemiology, public health, countermeasure development, safety, security, ethics, agriculture, law, we bring a wealth of diverse perspectives and opinions on the topic at hand. We as a scientific community don't know what we're doing, so it's really important to, it's true, I know. But what we share is a common interest in advancing scientific understanding, but first and foremost, a desire to protect public health. And underpinning that common interest is a shared value, a value that when we conduct science, 
It's important for us to not only think about its aims, its purposes, but also about its implications, its potential repercussions for society. And that's essentially why we're here today. As Tony mentioned, the focus of this meeting is what we're referring to as gain-of-function research. And in the context of this meeting, we are referring to research that will confer new biologic properties, research that will confer new biologic properties by enhancing the transmissibility, enhancing the pathogenicity, or potentially expanding or altering the host range, that will confer new biologic properties by enhancing the transmissibility, enhancing the pathogenicity, or potentially expanding or altering the host range of highly pathogenic H5N1. And as Tony mentioned, the reason that is the focus of this meeting is because case reports to date, particularly since 2003, have underscored the high the human mortality associated with human infection with this virus. The high human mortality associated with human infection with this virus. So the notion of potentially conferring additional biologic attributes to this agent is really what underscores the concern today. Conferring additional biologic attributes to this agent is really what underscores the concern today. As Tony mentioned, researchers in this community of uh, work demonstrated their commitment to responsible to science by declaring a pause on the research, a pause on research that would increase transmissibility of high path H5. That pause has been in place since January of this year, and we're just about to close out 2012. The community is seeking guideposts for its own path forward. And while this meeting is not going to make a decision per se about that pause, we believe that the discussions here today will illuminate the guideposts that are sought for by that community. And importantly, this meeting is going to provide a wide range of perspectives, hopefully ideas, concepts that we haven't yet thought of that will inform the Department of Health and Human Services as we finalize our framework for how we will approach making decisions about which of this research we will support, if any, and if we do support it, under what conditions will it be funded and supported. The perspectives that you offer over the next two days are going to be taken to heart as we work to finalize this framework over the next uh, several weeks. We believe, in addition, that this forum will make a significant contribution to the international dialogue on this issue. We hope that the meeting will highlight ideas, perspectives, and approaches that will inform your national efforts for those of you who come from uh, other countries and help inform the way that you think about policy, the way you might approach your own funding decisions. And at this juncture, I'd like to quickly review just the topics on the agenda and, again, some of the meeting mechanics that I think might come in handy for you. Our first panel will entail a discussion of HPAI H5N1 gain-of-function research, its design, its trajectory, its hoped-for aims in terms of addressing public health issues. And with that roadmap in front of us, let's begin our first panel. I skipped ahead a little bit there, just so you know. Skipped over her. So, a pleasure part. to uh, thank you, Dr. Patterson. It's a pleasure to introduce the first set of co moderators for the first panel, uh, which will focus and on the we'll uh, HPAI, H5N1 gain of function research and its implications. Here. The downstream effects of those discoveries 
This is panel one of the highly pathogenic H5N1 gain-of-function research and its implications for global public health. That's very important because the scientists have been talking to each other now for nearly 15 years, but the general public haven't bought in to all of the aspects and consequences of the recent research. And our first speaker is Dr. Ron Fouchier, who's a professor in the Department of Virology at the Erasmus Medical Center in the Netherlands. Ron. In, in 2007, the, the so-called Fink report listed seven categories of experiments that could lead to dual-use research of concern, such as increasing virulence, or transmissibility of pathogens or inducing resistance to drugs, or inducing resistance to drugs, such as increasing virulence or transmissibility of pathogens or inducing resistance to drugs. And those are the issues that are discussed today. This list contains five or six categories of research that have been used in H5 and 1 virus research to date. That have been used in H5 and 1 virus research to date. The reason why so many categories have been used is that this list of seven of the Fink report exactly represents the research agenda of the infectious disease field. When outbreaks with novel pathogens occur, whether it's enterohemorrhagic E. coli or SARS or SARS or SARS or SARS or pandemic H1 or highly pathogenic H5N1, infectious disease specialists get asked the same question time and time and time, and time again. Why does this pathogen cause such a, such a severe disease, and why does it kill humans? Can this pathogen be transmitted between humans and via which routes? Can this pathogen adapt further and infect additional hosts or cause different types of disease? Which drugs that we have work, and can, be, and can the pathogens become resistant to these drugs? To answer these questions, infectious disease specialists have to use gain-of-function research. The HHS proposed framework for H5N1 research indicates that alternative methods exist to answer these, methods, these questions. And it would be great if that were true. HHS has listed comparative genomics, predictive modeling, um, and loss of function experiments as ex examples of alternative methods. And although each of these methods can have significant value, none provide the definitive answers to the questions that were asked. These alternative types of experiments mostly yield answers that are partial, suggestive, and correlative. These experiments are therefore generally only performed as a first series of experiments, but the final proof of the pudding has to come from gain-of-function experiments. Yes, Ron, we get it. But this is the equivalent to the logic that in order to know for sure the destructive power and patterns of radioactive dispersal of a nuclear bomb, we must drop one on a large, unsuspecting city. That way, we'll know for sure. Gain-of-function approaches have answered numerous critical questions from the public health perspective related to H5N1. And it's important to realize that some of these answers do not result in direct applications, but are critical for the advancement of science and public health on the longer term. Dual use is clandestinely defined here by one of its main purveyors. Some of these answers, he says, do not result in direct applications, but are critical for the advancement of whatever science and public health in the long term means.
In other words, the results have nothing to do with the purpose of the actual or current experiment being funded, but are done intentionally for dual use, or in this case, future purposes, because they would not be funded or allowed otherwise. The real problem, as we'll see, is that no one really knows what science means. Science is not the scientific method, but some corporate structure of patented ideas and biological life forms, artificial intelligence, and, of course, artificial life to go along with it. This will all become clear as we progress. Examples of these are studies addressing the role of the HA basic cleavage site in virulence or the role of HA receptor binding specificity uh, in relation to tropism, host range, and transmission, or the role of NS1 in evading innate immune responses of the host. Through gain-of-function research, we now also know that H5 and 1 can become resistant to drugs. Through gain-of-function research, we now also know that H5 and 1 can become resistant to drugs, which has result resulted in increased interest in drug design and drug discovery programs. We got to learn that H5 and 1 can become airborne transmissible in mammals. We got to learn that H5 and 1 can become airborne transmissible in mammals resulting in stronger advice from the infectious disease community to countries where H5N1 outbreaks occur to stop these outbreaks, as H5N1 can no longer be seen as just a poultry problem. The transmission research further provides guidance to the WHO and FAO surveillance program to get to the next level and allow the identification of parts of the world that should be prioritized for H5N1 eradication. So there's plenty of positive news for the advancement of science and public health that has come from gain-of-function research. When flu researchers like myself, like myself, when flu researchers like myself from around the globe announced a voluntary 60-day ban on this type of research, this was done to provide some time for organizations and governments around the world to find solutions for the challenges and for the opportunities that stem from this work. And it is sobering to see how much time has been spent on the challenges and how little on the opportunities. As a consequence, the benefits from the gain-of-function research have not yet been claimed to the full extent. And this is why I have been a strong advocate to convince the NIH and other organizations to stop the research pause and give the green light to continue the research. To stop the research pause and give the green light to continue the research. We have identified key questions for surveillance, key questions for further fundamental research, and we have generated the tools and reagents to better evaluate vaccines and drug candidates. In my opinion, it is undesirable and perhaps even unresponsible to maintain a ban on this follow-up research. All of this research is aimed to prevent flu pandemics to, or to mitigate their impact if they cannot be prevented altogether. Here again, we see this sociopathic logical fallacy card being played. We are supposed to believe that force evolving a more virulent, more contagious, more drug-resistant, more deadly, and of course, more patentable, and thus more profitable, viruses will help prevent the spread and pandemic potential of the natural viruses we copy and intentionally mutate through gain-of-function research, by causing those mutations that most often cannot even happen in nature in the first place. To compare what happens in the lab to what happens in nature is patently ridiculous. 
So in summary, I argue that gain-of-function approaches are essential to advance science and public health in general, but certainly for H5 and 1. Gain-of-function approaches have contributed enormously to advance science and public health. Laws and regulations are in place, and they have been shown to work. Some incre incremental refinement may be required, but whole new layers of rules and regulations are not needed. Our next speaker is Dr. Aditama, who is the Director General of Disease Control and Environmental Health in the Ministry of Health in Indonesia. Ladies and gentlemen, for Indonesia, the research is very important as a guide for risk assessment. As the virus evolves naturally, we need to monitor whether it is acquiring the mutation as found in the research. The research is also potentially to improve vaccine development program. I believe that the benefit of conducting gain-of-function research generally outweighs the risk as long as the research is done in accordance with the ethical clearance and in biosecure laboratory setting. At this point, I would like to raise the importance of active involvement and participation of the country scientists from where the virus is found to be able to solve the real public health problem in the field, in the community, in the people. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. Our next speaker is Dr. Robin Robinson, who is the Director of the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority and the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response at the Department of Health and Human Services in the U.S. Thank you, Kanta. Thank you, Rob. And thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. And so we have on this panel Ron Fouchier, the actual listed scientist that did this original gain-of-function work that caused this debate in the first place. And now we come to Robin Robinson. Now, does Mr. Robinson have any conflicts of interest here? Any reason he should not be on this panel, perhaps? Well, Dr. Robin A. Robinson is the Chief Scientific Officer for Renovacare, a cell renewal company. Cell renewal being a definite dual-use qualification. From their website, we read that Dr. Robin A. Robinson is a respected authority on the development of breakthrough biomedical technologies and a seasoned expert in consummating collaborations with leading U.S. government agencies, Fortune 500 companies, academic research groups, and foreign governments, for which he was cited in 2018 as one of the top 100 innovators in medicine. Notably, Dr. Robinson was appointed as the first director of the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, or BARDA, at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. With an annual budget of $1.35 billion and a staff of 250 scientists and medical experts. He brought BARDA into prominence as one of the top 10 fully integrated research and development organizations worldwide supporting advanced development and acquisition of more than 240 drugs, vaccines, diagnostics, and medical devices for man-made biodefense threats, pandemic influenza, and emerging infectious diseases including Ebola and Zika viruses. Yes, Ebola and Zika viruses are currently receiving gain-of-function research studies. Man-made mutations. 
32 of these medical countermeasure products that Barta supported were approved and licensed by the FDA during his 12-year tenure. He concurrently served as Deputy Assistant Secretary, Office of Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, under appointment by the Health and Human Services Secretary, Michael Levitt. Prior to his public service at BARDA, of course, he was a pharmaceutical director of vaccines at Novavax, Incorporated, resulting in discovery and development of more than 12 vaccine candidates. Before entering the pharmaceutical industry, he was an assistant professor in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School, conducting research on the molecular pathogenesis of herpes virus and, surprise, HIV-1. During his tenure at BARDA, Dr. Robinson initiated over $535 million in contracts, then goes on to say that Dr. Robinson is a consummate deal-maker, having successfully established over 60 partnerships with federal agencies, including the United States Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, one of the most corrupt organizations in the world, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, same, National Institutes of Health, the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases, in other words, dual-use biological weapons, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, again, heavy, heavy biological weapons research, the Joint Program Executive Office for Chemical and Biological Defense, of course, the Department of Defense used to be called the Department of War, and the Defense Threat Reduction Agency. His more than 80 non-governmental and commercial partnerships included the Gates Foundation, the Wellcome Trust, the pharmaceutical companies like Sanofi, GlaxoSmithKline, PLC, Novartis, Merck, and Roche Genentech, Amgen, Johnson & Johnson, Crucell, the SIGA, Regeneron, and Emergent, and many others. Dr. Robinson has developed collaborations with universities and foreign governments, including the Johns Hopkins University, North Carolina State, and the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, France, Germany, and others. At RavennaCare, Dr. Robinson is responsible for setting the company's scientific strategy and leading our science and engineering teams in research and development activities. Dr. Robinson is a key participant in new product innovation and development and is charged with advancing the company's technology along with its FDA submission pathway. Just one more case of a pharmaceutical worker going into government and then back into private practice using his government connections for profit. Dr. Robinson oversees and directs Ravenocare strategy, execution, and engagement with government agencies, contract research organizations, academic institutions, and select opinion leaders. Dr. Robinson chairs the Ravenocare Scientific Advisory Board. Now, does this sound like someone who should be deciding on the fate of the entire human population when it comes to dual use or that is, gain-of-function research. No sane person could answer in any other way than absolutely not. And yet, here we are in this supposedly public forum.
The Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority at HHS in the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response is uh, a new agency uh, established in 2006, but has been uh, at the forefront in making uh, available funds for supporting the development and the availability of countermeasures such as vaccines, antiviral drugs, diagnostics and medical devices that would be needed in a number of different events, including uh, bio-threat events such as anthrax, smallpox, pandemic influenza, and emerging infectious diseases. Relative to this type of research, we have actually done an assessment and were not able to identify any of our research uh, that was being funded uh, being in dual use. But it's this last area of advanced development of medical countermeasures with H5N1 where we've moved forward with uh, development of cell-based recombinant molecular vaccines and new antiviral drugs. And in that regard, the gain-of-function activities and research uh, would have a very big effect also in our areas for diagnostics that we work very closely with centers of disease control. And we would uh, benefit greatly by being able to be able to predict what uh, new viruses are circulating and to be able to use the stockpiles that we have made available. The stockpiles have actually become very operative uh, in the course of uh, immunizing the vaccine with the vaccines, uh, laboratory workers and manufacturing workers for these uh, vaccines for, that uh, make the H5N1 stockpiles. In addition, those stockpiles of antiviral drugs uh, can be made available uh, to those workers that are at high risk. It's the issue of what are the potential benefits and risks going forward if we weren't to do this research that I, I call your attention to, especially on the antiviral. Because of the uh, prevalence of antiviral drug resistance uh, occurring so quickly uh, with some of the uh, existing antiviral drugs that we have in our stockpiles, we and the NIH have had to f look at other targets. And relative to viral targets, uh, lack of gain-of-function studies would really affect some of the viral RNA polymerase inhibitors, uh, antiviral drug candidates that we have uh, and others in the U.S. government are sponsoring the development. Vex antiviral drug candidates that we have uh, and others in the U.S. government are sponsoring the development uh, to understand because if those functions uh, were to, uh, the mutations were to affect uh, the function of those genes, since those targets would no longer be effective, then those antiviral drug candidates uh, would become obsolete. The mutations were to affect uh, the function of those genes, since those targets would no longer be effective, then those antiviral drug candidates uh, would become obsolete. Those antiviral drug candidates uh, would become obsolete. Secondly, what host cell service receptors. We've had to move to, to look at host targets for the uh, effectiveness of antiviral drugs. Welcome to BioSciWar, the double-edged developments. This is the fourth uh, slot in the series of the BioSciWar, and one of many as we continue to uncover uh, the research that you've seen there in that excellent documentary that we opened up with by Clint Richardson uh, called Wagging the Dog Part 1, perhaps, uh, meaning that is a 9-hour and 44-minute documentary that you can download and get there for free uh, f and 
archive that one, I would say, and go through it a few times uh, just to get a better look at some of the meetings and things that go on behind the scenes that you might not be as familiar with um, in the Biosci War. Uh, as you saw there, and as the title of this episode is is hinting at, we're going to go over some of this sort of um, worldview of this dual-sided, um, one second, of this this sort of um, rationale, this uh, what you could call a more what's the word I'm looking for? It's like a it'll pop it it'll come to me in a second here. But the idea that you can research these chimera viruses, you can do gain-of-function research, you can do dual-use or offensive and defensive research, which is really kind of the same thing, except for they play on each other. So if there's offensive research being done, you know, that's maybe to the public not as appealing as saying, well, it's defensive research. But then that always gives you the, well, what if Russia is doing this kind of narrative? Or, you know, what if... Uh, there we go. That's the level that we needed to go up. What if uh, the Nazis are, are have, have this kind of science research going on? We better be researching that. And okay, you could say that that um, pragmatic philosophy or that pragmatic uh, approach to this scientific conundrum of uh, guys like Robin Robinson there who are directly involved with the dual use and gain-of-function research and uh, weaponizing these viruses and then also saying well you know he really would like the funding to continue they need to bring back because you know there could be um, future outbreaks and future weaponized viruses that they don't have antiviral drugs for and we need to be able to develop the antiviral drugs to you know so you can see that they're kind of it's like the dog chasing its tail or wagging the dog you know um, as <clears throat> Clint's documentary is named there so yeah, the double-edged developments. Today we're going to be going over some documents that I've pulled up and printed out some of them. And we're going to try some new techniques today to get the information out. And uh, yeah, again, thank you for joining the BioSciWar double-edged developments episode today. And again, if you haven't seen any of the previous episodes in the series, you can go through and watch the opening that we did um, and then as well as going back in the show notes there's some other references that you can see there and uh, let me just pull that up really quick here so we could take a look at how to kind of navigate the mess here is tylerblair.com you can see the latest posts you can go to this episode for example and get the show notes and uh, what i'm talking about would be some of these see also clips so uh grand theft world pop podcast episode seven the cyber panopticon uh grand theft world podcast episode 11 as well as all the other episodes of grand theft world um in the last year going through the bio psyop apocalypse series from david emery's archives would be suggested you can start uh, kind of somewhat in the after he got started at episode uh, 1119 and 1120 and that would be a good place to go. Um, coming up, we're going to be going into Lyme disease and more of that research. So you could also check out some of the research that Dave did on that, as well as some of these key articles that we're kind of compiling. The Fort Detrick lab shut down after failed safety inspection. Um, that was in August of 2019. Uh, Peter Dazak's Echo Health Alliance connections, as well as, you know, the good article that we read in the second episode of the bio psyop 
second or third. Um, bats, gene editing, and bioweapons, recent DARPA experiments raise concern amid coronavirus outbreak. The article there from Whitney Webb over at The Last American Vagabond or uh, unlimitedhangout.com. Today's resources can be found there in the show notes. And yeah, so that's some of the stuff that we should be looking forward to or be looking forward to go through to add to the story and not just like today's one series as part of the bigger picture. The bigger picture that we've been trying to explore is how the pandemic was really not a man-made uh, or sorry, that it was a man-made bioweapon and like a man-made pandemic. And uh, it was released, uh, you know, or leaked. I, I lean on the side more of this was a released thing and that it has connections back to the U.S. military, uh, the techno-fascist, uh, the communo takeover currently going on on the world, the Great Reset, um, the monetary economic transition that we're going through the rapid shift in things that needed to go on to kind of get to this next uh stage in the process of of where we're at in the human saga this craziness that's been unfolding in the last couple years it's only going to get more intense i feel like we're up for a 10-year sort of battle Uh, obviously the battle goes on longer but this particular series in the battle is started kicked off you know late 2019 early 2020 and We'll be in for what I see as like the five horses of the apocalypse. So like the five deadly viruses of the apocalypse are going to be continually, you know, pounded with this pandemic thing, with viral outbreaks, with biological weapons, with uh, conspiracy theories, with... And by the way, I thought it was pretty funny that last week my video got a tag um, that said... um, I was involved with the Q movement or something. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious that somehow my information gets mixed in with that. You know, that's like the new, just the calling somebody a conspiracy theorist. I've never been into that. I, I've personally never really even looked into that enough to know what it's all about. Only like a little bit on the edges. But, you know, anyway, probably talking about it too much here would cause a, a little trip in the matrix here. Uh, a glitch in the matrix. So, yeah, I see the virus as being, you know, something that was created, uh, this biological weapon then released uh, as as part of sort of launching the great amplifier that Klaus Schwab talks about, how COVID-19 and the great amplification of all of our agendas, as he's wearing his, like, uh, Lord of the Sith outfit. Um, there was a hilarious video that we may be playing in the Grand Theft World, so I don't want to spoil it here. Um, it was from Bandot Video. Uh, you can go check out that Lord of the Sith video. Maybe I'll drop it in the show notes tomorrow after we've kind of... Because we might use that as a piece in the segment tonight, so I don't want to spoil it here. Uh, yeah, and other than that, Grand Theft World Podcast Episode 9, I would also go check out... Uh, we're going to be going over a clip from that today in the intermission. And, you know, just because something... Just because I'm questioning something or even making a theory and then I'm going to be breaking it down and going through it over the next uh, period of this series doesn't mean that I'm a, a hundred, making claims that are in concrete and doesn't mean that I'm not going to learn and change and grow the theory in my kind of thesis that I just put forward there. As time goes on, I'm open to the evidence. The evidence that we're going to be uncovering and that we've been uncovering is to support that. And just because I'm doing that doesn't mean I'm calling anything fake or saying that people aren't getting sick or not sympathetic to that fact. 
not saying that there aren't uh, serious matters to be addressed. I am not, uh, you know, claiming that Q is feeding us information on how to navigate things moving forward as Trump reassembles for his, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing any of that. I'm in fact very, I very, I don't really get into the politics at all, much at all. As far as it relates to the research that I do, uh, we will, but I don't believe in politics. I'm not political. I don't have a political party. And so that's, you know, we don't need to go too far into that. But let's go ahead today and we'll just jump right in to what we wanted to go through. Now, all these documents you can find in the show notes. And if we go to this, you can see this next document that I'm going to go and read through is online. I have printed it out here and it's called Discernment Between Deliberate and Natural Infectious Disease Outbreaks. Uh, you can find this on the NCBI nlm.nih.gov website and uh, let's go ahead and jump over to the book cam where we may have to just get this straightened out a little bit and move this over here zoom in thanks for bearing with me and i will just drop out of the way for now all right starting on page one here this is from august of 2006 and then I think there was some publication of it in 2007 and it was accepted in May 20 of 24 and we'll just read through the summary and the first page here and this says the public health authorities should be vigilant to the potential for outbreaks deliberately caused by biological agents in parentheses bioterrorism such events require a rapid response and incorporation of non-traditional partners for disease investigation and outbreak control. The astute application of infectious disease epidemiological principles can promote an enhanced index of suspicion for such events. We discuss epidemic epidemiological indicators that should be considered during outbreak investigations and also examine their application during bioterrorism incidents. An accidental release of an agent outbreak of an infectious of infections that were alleged to have been deliberately initiated and a model scenario. The Grunow and Fink epi epidemiological assessment tool is used to examine these historical events and the model scenario. Let me just get this closer here. The result received from the analysis coupled with the understanding of epidemiological clues to unnatural events and knowledge of how to manage such events and aid in the improved response and resolution of epidemics. So again, they've opened up, this is the discernment between deliberate and natural infectious disease outbreaks from the NIH. Uh, there's a number of people that contributed to this that you could read about there. And they're gonna go through how to discern, you know, some of the more naturally occurring versus like some intentional biowarfare uh, release of a bioweapon. So in the introduction here, we'll read successfully managed, starting again, 
Successful management of infectious disease transmission in a population, whether naturally occurring or deliberately caused, bioterrorism, is directly related to event recognition. In Yugoslavia, in 1972, one unrecognized smallpox case led to 11 unrecognized secondary cases. Within weeks, a massive, vac oh, sorry, a massive vaccination effort and border closure occurred in response to the 175 smallpox cases and 35 subsequent deaths. Early recognition of sm secondary cases may has have significantly modified the eventual outcome. One simulation study of a smallpox outbreak showed that the more rapid the intervention, including quarantine and vaccination, the greater the chances of halting disease spread. It is unlikely that a bioterrorism event would be considered initially by medical professionals, especially if the disease presentation is similar to other diseases that might be expected to occur, such as seasonal influenza. Surprised I didn't highlight that last sentence. And I was having an issue um, with my typical writing hand during the time that I was highlighting this, so <laughs> I had to apologize ahead of time for some of the highlighted notes here as they're not exactly on target. And even there, I'm still having somewhat of an, is an issue there. That's okay. That's why we didn't do the stream yesterday. Okay. So just continuing on with the introduction from the discernment between deliberate and natural infectious disease outbreaks from the NCBI, you can found on the NIH.gov website. Physicians are taught to consider common illness and may diagnose an epidemic disease before a new or emerging disease, a laboratory accident or deliberately caused epidemic. Therefore, care providers should have some familiarity with those diseases expected to cause when caused by bioterrorism agents and a healthy in quote index of suspicion unquote if they are to recognize an event early enough to make significant modifications to the outcome this review presents three categories of epidemiological case studies that illustrate deliberately caused epidemics and accidentally accidental release of biological warfare or bw agents the natural outbreak that may mimic bioterrorism. Potential epidemiological clues are provided to discern more ably uh, deliberately caused outbreak. These clues are linked to the epidemiological case study to illustrate their application. An epidemiological assessment tool is applied to these case studies that may help public health authorities to determine. So that's kind of what he was saying in the beginning. We'll just skip down here to epidemiological case studies. The following epidemiological case studies are presented to illustrate the differences between deliberate and naturally occurring epidemics. Historical biological attacks and some naturally occurring epidemics are considered in this context. So they're going to go through, we're going to read this part, but they're going to go through a number of case studies briefly. And then in, later in the book, they go like more in depth into the research that was done for those. So we're going to skip through a lot of that part so we can get to the good uh, conclusion at the end. But just bear with me as we continue on with the discernment between deliberate and natural infectious disease outbreaks article.
Okay, deliberate epidemic bioterrorism. The three, the first three studies were deliberately caused bioterrorism events that occurred in the United States. These events were not recognized immediately as intentional. In the anthrax mailings of 2001, the agent was recognized as intentionally spread within days to weeks. This is a dramatic improvement over a 1984 salmonella outbreak in Oregon, which was not recognized as bioterrorism for over a year. Salmonella. Now, this is a, a, one of the events that was a deliberate event that occurred in 1984 in Dallas, or, uh, the Dallas, Oregon. Salmonella in the second most common is the second most common foodborne illness and contaminated food most often poultry is the principal route of disease transmission salmonella manifests as acute uh, gastro gastrointestinal with fever sorry i probably just butchered that occasionally more severe manifestations occur especially in the very young or elderly. In 1984, two large cohorts of salmonella cases occurred in the Dallas, Oregon. The size and nature of this outbreak initiated a criminal investigation. The cause only became known when the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, investigated a nearby cult, the Rajaneshis, for other criminal violations in October of 1985. A vial containing a culture of Salmonella trimerium was discovered by authorities in the Ranchinishi Clinic Laboratory. This strain was indistinguishable from the outbreak strain as isolated from the food and the clinic specimens. So he goes on and explains that event and how uh, they linked that in. We're just gonna skip ahead a little bit in the essence of time in this article, but I did have here that I wanted to read this whole page. So what there must have been something interesting. I'm going to start here on page three of this document. Now this is a big old document. So like I said, we're going to move through pretty fast here in a minute, but we're going to go through some of this initial stuff. Now, thank you for bearing with me during this uh, live broadcast. We're doing it live. So par pardon the technical difficulties if they arise. Public health authorities obtained comprehensive food histories from those ill, interviewed restaurants, employees, and collected stool samples. Da -da 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 -da. Okay, yeah, that's that goes more just into that and how they determined that the source of the outbreak was a puzzle. puzzle. Epidemiological analysis revealed not a single but multiple suspect food. Okay, and then in uh, Shigeliosis in Dallas, Texas in 1996, between uh, 29 October and 1st of November 1996, 12 clinical laboratory workers at the St. Paul Medical Center in Dallas developed severe acute diarrhea illness as a result of eating muffins and donuts left in their break room on the 29th of October. Shigelia dysteria type 2 was cultured from the stools of eight patients. This was uncommon strain of Shigella and had not been reported as an outbreak source since 1983. Another individual became ill from pastries brought home by the laboratory worker and also had proven S. dysteria type 2 infection 
Five patients were treated in an emergency department and released. Epidemiologists interviewed 45 laboratory employees. An anonymous email was sent from a supervisor's computer, invited workers to eat pastries in the laboratory break room. And then they go on to say how that was done. It's interesting, but we're not going to go through that here. <coughs> um, the conclusion on that one is that the examination of the hospital laboratory storage freezer revealed tampering of refrigerant cultures of dysteria type 2. The stored culture should have contained 25 porous bread impregnations with the microorganisms, but the dysteria type 2 vial only had 19 beads. Laboratory records indicated that the vial had been unused, as dysteria type 2 was isolated from the muffin specimens and from the stools of the A patients. Pulsed field gel electrophorosis revealed that the reference cultured isolated were indistinguishable from each other. So basically someone stole those out of a lab and put them in the pastries. Okay, and then there's the anthrax outbreak of 2001. Uh, we're going to move into in USA. A case of uh, inhalation anthrax was reported in a 63-year-old male in Florida. Public health and government authorities initially announced this individual had probably contracted the illness by hunting while two other cases occurred in florida i should have just pulled this staple out but it's all right another case of anthrax via uh, cutaneous exposure was identified in a female employee at the nbc news in new york uh, in new york city Investigators then realized that exposure had occurred from anthrax-containing letters placed in the mail on October 15th. Sorry, placed in the mail. On 15th of October, a Senate Majority Leader received an anthrax-containing letter, which led to the closure of the Hart Senate building, office building in Washington, D.C. By the end of the year, anthrax-laden letters placed in the mail had caused 22 cases of anthrax, 11 from inhalation, all confirmed, 11 cutaneous, 7 confirmed, 4 suspected, and 5 deaths, mostly among postal workers, and had, and those handling mail. A 12th case of anthrax related to these mailings occurred on March 2002 with Texas Laboratory, where anthrax samples were processed. Okay, so you guys probably, most of the people watching this show would probably remember that event. Um, maybe there's some younger folks here that don't remember that. Uh, I guess I'm getting kind of old, so it's very possible. I even have some acquaintances that I probably do watch the show that aren't old enough to necessarily remember living through that, which is interesting. But uh, yeah, so we'll just continue on here uh, in the discernment between deliberate and natural infectious disease outbreaks the and it's going to go into accidental release of biological agent okay so then it goes through now again sometimes it's hard for me to tell how long these things are going to take to read through as i'm going through it and reading it but they go through and talk about the accidental release of biological agents there's this anthrax release in uh, 1979 in the soviet union that's uh, quite interesting to go through, and I believe there's actually some controversy around this, you know, um, whether or not this was accidental. 
uh, I had something highlighted here. Natural outbreaks that mimic deliberate e epidemics. So let's just read through this portion here. We'll get out of the way. This is at the bottom of page four. Although the following are examples of naturally occurring outbreaks, they provide epidemiological clues that should raise an index of suspicion of an international outbreak. These naturally occurring outbreaks share features with intentionally generated outbreaks. Subsequent to the 1999 West Nile virus outbreak in New York City, suggestions were made that a biological weapon had been released covertly by Iraqi operatives. These allegations occurred because documentation existed that the CDC had provided Iraq with various biological agents from 1984 to 1993, including Yesternia pestis dengue and West Nile virus. The American Type Culture Collection, ATCC, had shipped C. Botanillium and Asparagillus cultures and the government of Iraq was known to have had covert biological weapons programs. Similar to allegations of covert use of biological weapons were made during the 1999-2000 Kosovo Tularemia outbreak. Now that's, I think I cut the top off while I was reading that. I might just read that again, uh, that part. So the highlighted part I, I, I had there, subsequent to the 1999 West Nile virus outbreak in New York City, suggestions were made that biological weapons had been released covertly from Iraqi operatives. These allegations occurred because documentation existed that the CDC had provided Iraq with various biological agents from 1984 to 1993, including Yersenia pestis dengue and West Nile virus. The American Type Culture Collections ATCC had shipped C. botulinum and Asparagillus cultures, and the government of Iraq was known to have had covert biological weapons programs. Similar allegations of the covert use of biological weapons were made during 1999 to 2000 Kosovo Tularemia outbreak. Now, that was highly interesting, right? So the CDC, according to this document, and these sources are here, and this is a NIH.gov uh, primary document, you know, sourced from their website that I printed out here, saying that the CDC was aware that Iraq had uh, biological weapons based on the fact that they had given it to them. <laughs> and you could read more about the West Nile virus uh, section here. This is highly interesting as well. We're going to skip through that for now. Uh, I had to read the bottom of this. <coughs> Unusual on the bottom of page five of discernment between deliberate and natural infectious disease outbreaks. Unusual outbreaks of zoonosis or vector-borne diseases may occur readily in war-torn or crisis-afflicted regions that have been caused intentionally. Oh, sorry. 
let me start starting over. Unusual outbreaks of zoonosis or vector-borne disease may occur readily in war-torn or crisis-afflicted regions that have previously been free from these diseases. Speculation may arise that these epidemics have been caused intentionally. Many biological agents are zoonotic pathogens, including the category A, bio, a biological weapon pathogens, Franciscilla tolernosis. You can tell I'm not very good at reading these like long medical terms. Unsubstantiated statements by the head epidemiologist at the Kosovo Institute of Public Health concerning unidentified M. powels and powders found near various wells added to a perception of biological weapons use by Serbia forces. F. tolernosis, biova tolernosis type A, found primarily in North America, is highly pathogenic for humans and had been developed as a biological weapon. Disease progressions often follow an acute and severe course, with uh, pneumonotis pr prominent. Uh, Toleromia is naturally transmitted to humans through skin lesions of those handling diseased rabbits or ingesting contaminated water or food from bites of infected anthropods or inhaled of infectious dusts. Okay, skipping ahead. I wanted to read the top of this page. Uh, that's interesting. Thank you. Uh, okay, reading from the top of page six. Uh, that disease is less or that a uh, BW is less pathogenic and found through the entire northern hemisphere. To further complicate matters, in 1998, a type A telomeria had been documented in anthropod populations in nearby Slovak Republic. And they go more into that. On that page, I am going to head, uh, skip ahead a little bit. And this is a very interesting part. <laughs> this We're almost through. I'm going to get this part and then a few other parts in this big document and thank you for your patience <laughs> as i struggle through reading some of these uh, more complicated like medical terms and words and doing it live with the nice book cam here i am in the room i just figure i'd get out of the way uh, while reading into the more like thick documents and that's basically what we're doing in the bio sci war is going through and documenting uh the, the evidence that of making my claim, right? I've made a claim that this appears to be a intentional release of a biological weapon. And, you know, when I'm talking about what happened in the, in the current plague that's ongoing and from 2020 onward into 2021, you have some people in the world making claims that, you know, we're coming out of it by April, we'll be back to normal. And then you have other people like Anthony Fauci who are claiming that things aren't going to be back to normal until 2022. Um, so we're just trying to make sure we can understand as much information as is available to go through and document the most important facts that we come across here in the live streams and then continue on down uh, substantiating the claim as I think it will become more apparent what I'm putting forward as time goes on anyhow.
but we might as well help people along the process, which is the idea of the bio-sci war in today in the double-edged developments. In the event of a deliberately caused epidemic, the number of casualties may be small, reading from page 6 here, in the discernment between deliberate and natural infectious disease outbreaks, and therefore unrecognized and intentional as, as intentionally infected. Moreover, individuals may disperse throughout the country before they become ill and seek medical care. Care providers should be aware of the potential clues that may red that may be red flags that someone something unusual has occurred. While these clues may occur with natural outbreaks and do not necessarily signal a deliberate attack with biological agents, they should heighten one's index of suspicion that an unnatural event has occurred. Clue number one: a highly unusual event with a large number of casualties. Naturally spread illnesses may cause a large group of individuals, <coughs> may cause a large group of ill individuals. However, large outbreaks should merit particular attention, especially when there was no plausible natural explanation for the cause. In 1984, salmonella outbreak in the Dallas, Oregon is an example of this. Clue number two. Higher morbidity or mortality than is expected. A higher morbidity or mortality than is typically observed for a particular disease may provide a clue as it's to unusual event. The biological agent may have been altered for greater pathogenicity, or individuals could be exposed to a higher inoculum than would be natural. Additionally, if the disease should be sensitive to certain antibiotics but displays resistance, then possibly resistance was genetically engineered. The cases of anthrax at Sverdolskvi had high mortality. A, higher, more, a high mortality could be seen with gastrointestinal anthrax, which the government claimed to be the cause at the time, linking the pathological findings of respiratory diseases with the high mortality made inhalated anthrax more likely. Clue number three, that uh, potential ep epidemiological clues to the deliberate epidemic. Clue number three, uncommon disease. Many infections, many infectious diseases have predictable, predictable distribution based on environmental hosts and vector factors. One should consider a disease outbreak uncommon for a geographical area as having been unnaturally spread concern should be heightened if the disease requires a competent vector for spread and that the vector should not uh, thought and, the, and that the vector is not thought to be present so that's all highly interesting i think naturally have in fact occurred in novel geographical locations examples include the appearance of the West Nile virus in New York City in 1999, and also bubonic plague cases in New York City in 2002. The 1996 outbreak of Shigella, Shigella in, Dallas, in Dallas was unusual since the strain was uncommon. There was no current research being conducted at the hospitals that there was no other outbreaks in the community at the time and no identifiable contamination at the manufacturing facility.
the West Nile virus outbreak constituted a true emerging infection as the disease became established in a new location while the plague cases were s simply imported by the out-of-state residents. It is important to at least consider in these situations whether the disease is natural or deliberate. Clue 4. Point of source outbreak. In addition to intentional events, dates of onset would probably depict a point source outbreak curve. This shows a fairly quick rise in cases, a brief plateau, and then an acute drop. The curve might be somewhat compressed due to the individuals being exposed more closely in time, <coughs> i.e. seconds, minutes or, uh, of each other. From an aerosol release, compared with individuals being ill after eating a common food over a period of minutes to hours, the inoculum may also have a great, greater than the typically seen with natural spread, thus yielding a shorter than expected incubation period. The 1979 anthrax epidemic in Sverdlovsk was a point of source release. In addition to Shigella outbreak in Texas demonstrated a classical point source curve. The US anthrax mailings represented, uh, presented a different kind of point source outbreak. What made that situation unusual was that the actual point source, the letters, were traveling through the mail system. That led to an outbreak pattern with individual cases spread over time and distance in multiple states, it says. All right. Thanks for bearing with me while reading through this document here. <clears throat> Clue number five, multiple epidemics. Multiple perpetrators in collaboration could release a single biological agent at various locations or even multiple agents from multiple locations. Hence, should simultaneous epidemics occur at different locations with the same or multiple organisms, one should consider an unnatural source. The 1984, so that goes on to give some examples of that. Clue number six, lower attack rates at in protected individuals. This clue applies to military populations and also to those building and filtering air supply. For example, if a group were wore military-oriented protective posture, MOPP, gear, or other devices that protect airways such as high-efficiency particular air HEPA filter masks stayed in HEPA filter tent and had lower rates of illness than unprotected groups in the same geographical area, this should prompt consideration of exposure to aerosolized agents. And as we saw that that's, you know, some of the gain of function research that they were doing was attempting to aerosolize, uh, you know, SARS and uh, MERS and things like that. So a, a lot of this stuff here does explain COVID, I think, you know, these clues are giving the example of what it's like to witness a biological attack on the entire planet. <laughs> I know that that's, you know, me just like adding that in there and while well, jumping to the conclusion right away, but, you know, let's just continue on with these uh, dead animals, reverse spread. Those are the additional clues there. Let's go ahead and skip forward. patterns, uh, unusual disease manifestation. As over, This is clue number nine. As over 95% of anthrax cases worldwide are cutaneous, 
even one case of inhalation anthrax should be considered an unnatural event until proven otherwise. It is illogical to suggest to suggest that 66 deaths resulting from an outbreak of inhalation or yeah inhalational anthrax in Sverdolskvi <laughs> that's how I'm going to say it okay in 1979 was from a natural source the same applies to cases of inhalation and cutaneous anthrax occurring in multiple states at the same or similar times pneumonic plague or bubonic plague cases may be suspect if most cases are the bubonic form oh, okay pneumonic plague should be <sighs> let me just start that over pneumonic plague cases may be suspected if most cases are the bubonic form since pneumonic and telomeria <laughs> e.g had occurred in 2000 natural outbreak in martha's vineyard in massachusetts could also result from aerosol release of the f tolerius telorosis the man <laughs> this manifestation should also be suspect okay and then let's just read clue number 11 if we can get through it direct evidence of a particular a, a perpetuator leaving evidence would make determining the intentional cause of illness easier. The evidence could be a letter filled with anthrax spores. In 2001, in the United States, the discovery of the spray evidence in another vehicle used for an agent's spread, such as contaminated food, as with salmonella in Oregon and shigella in Texas, samples from the suspect device can be compared with those victims to verify they have the same strain or organism of organism. Okay, and then now it's going to go through more of a deep dive review that I spoke about where you could actually read more about those cases. And so we're, we're going to skip through that. Now, just going back to, again to the actual website, this is the website that we're on right now. This is the... Uh, Discernment between deliberate and natural infectious disease outbreaks in CBI, the nlm.nih.gov. And I have actually printed out the document and marked up a couple sections. It's a larger 24, 25 page document. And let's see. Let's see if I wanted to actually go through and read this part. Or if we can skip that for now in the essence of time. Uh, you can see I'm skipping through quite a bit. And let's just read the conclusion. Okay. In conclusion, the science of epidemiology is superior is a superior foundation for response to the deliberate epidemic or bioterrorism Identification and management of such an event directly depends upon public health authorities and their capacity for disease surveillance, laboratory, and outbreak investigation. You can see that they'll always have these, like, we need better surveillance systems, which, you know, whatever. It is important to study the lesson from historical outbreak investigations so as to be better determined the difference between deliberate and natural outbreaks. 
Innovative epidemics assessments tools, such as that developed by Gruno and Fink, are useful to help make such differentiation. Maintaining an enhanced index of suspicious awareness of potential sentinel events, keeping communication open with health care providers and law enforcement authorities, and sustaining a robust surveillance system will together contribute to improving the response of future and deliberate outbreaks. All right. So I thought that was interesting. I thought there was quite a few things in there with the deliberate outbreak uh, evidence or signs and things that they want to uh, draw our attention to. There are definitely things that could be, you know, linked and looked at in the current plague and pandemic as things that uh, are evidence for um, there being some things that need to be further looked into with COVID-19, right? Um, such as uh, some of those clues of the way that it outbreaks. You know, if it's worldwide, that's kind of suspicious, right? If it's novel, um, if there's no cures, if it's resisting uh, currently well-known cures for those types of problems, um, things like that. So I have further evidence here to go through today. So we'll just continue on. Um, reading now from the Lancet article, will influenza be the next bioweapon? Okay, so you can see on the screen here, again, this is an article that I've printed out, but you can find it in the show notes here. And we're adding this to the evidence of what we're putting forward. This is from September of 2003 from the infection.thelancelet.com. Uh, the Lancet, in, the Lancet. I don't know why I'm saying the Lancet. The Lancet Infectious Disease Volume Three. Okay, for personal use only. The reproduction. Da, 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 okay. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll just go to the article that I have printed out on the screen here, and I'll get out of the way. I got to get in a little closer myself here on this one. The text is kind of small. Okay, so this is uh, that article. And in fact, since that text is kind of small and I'm kind of having a hard time reading it, let's just go back to the screen. It doesn't need to be printed out every time necessarily. And then I can kind of sit like that. Okay. And I can also still get out of the way of the article. Okay, so this is... Will influenza be the next bioweapon? The use, and this is from 2003, recall. The use of influenza as a bioterrorist weapon is a clear and present danger, warns Mohammed Madij, University of Texas Health and Science Center, Houston, Texas, USA. Quote, our work on the effects of influenza are on cardiovascular mortality shows that many people die from influenza-related myocardial inf infarctions, infarctions, which is not reported as influenza mortality. Thus, mortality due to influenza in the U.S. alone is much more than previously estimated, probably 90,000 annually rather than the reported 20,000, once the effort on the heart is taken into account. 
The idea that influenza could be so lethal prompted uh, Madid and colleagues to consider the virus. Let me start that over. The idea that influenza could be so lethal prompted Madij and colleagues to consider the virus's potential as a bioweapon. They reported their concerns, in particular, the soon-to-be-completed sequencing of the influenza genome from 1918 epidemic that killed 40 million people to the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine in 2003. And they're saying, I think, like, section 96, pages 345 through 346, perhaps. Unlike, and this is a quote, unlike anthrax, a quote from that uh, entry in that um, Journal of Royal Society of Medicine, unlike anthrax or smallpox, influenza is available. It can be aerosolized. The incubation period is short and inoculation doesn't protect you during the time, unquote, explains Madid. Moreover, if the epidemic starts, it may look natural because the flu happens every year, and whether man-made or natural, it can rapidly overwhelm and paralyze the whole healthcare system, unquote. Critics say that it would be hard to create an influenza strain that is virulent enough to pose a significant threat, and that could be back in 2003, me cutting in here, before all that funded research that you had seen uh, you know, the NIH and Fauci and gang and all his friends are doing, uh, and the DARPA and, um, you know, Fort Detrick, Maryland, and the different gain-of-function dual-use research that was being done. So going back to this, critics say that it would be hard to create an influenza strain that is virulent enough to pose a significant threat, but counters Klaus Store, pro but counters Klaus Store project leader for the WHO, Global Health Influenza Program, quote, the tools to create a virulent strain are readily, readily available, unquote. With reverse genetics, the same technology that was used to construct a vaccine against H5N1 influenza strain, in parentheses, drug discovery today, 2003, 8 pages 5, 18 through 19, quote, we can readily produce the surface protein and other proteins needed to assemble viruses on demand, he says. We could reproduce the 1918 virus or develop one that is completely new, put it together with the other proteins necessary for the virus to function, and then release it. So keep in mind, this is an article from 2003. Uh, that was Klaus Storr. Uh, the WHO's global in leader of the WHO's global influenza program, saying that uh, these viruses, such as the 1918 flu, are read readily available, and that someone could put it together with other proteins necessary for the virus to function, and then release it. Store would prefer to use reverse genetics and other technologies to develop cross-subtype specific vaccines. Quote, we have the homologous glutenin genes H1 and H15, and we should have vaccines that protect against H1 and H3, which are currently circulating, and any new or possible emerging strains, unquote. Because new vaccines development requires investments on the part of pharmaceutical companies, who is looking 
into, quote, changing the environment in a way that is conducive, unquote, to commercial entities. Licensing mechanisms and respect for intellectual property rights are among the issues that need to be worked out. Meanwhile, continues Stor, Stour, or however you say it, quote, we can develop a library of influenza viruses going around the world and getting all the different protein subtypes. This is the guy, the leader of the WHO, uh, subtypes and developing vaccine strains. Put them in a refrigerator and have something we can use in case we don't come to an agreement. Come to agreement. Govern unquote. Governments can also prepare, added Madid, Madid, and colleagues by providing better security for laboratories, vaccine manufacturers, and distributors. Improved influenza immunization programs, expanded disease surveillance, and the use of antiviral filters, biosensors, and inactivation mechanisms for ventilation systems. Stockpiling antivirals would also help, they suggest. However, Storr points out that this approach is extremely expensive and is being done only in Japan. Donald Henderson, founding director of John Hopkins University Center for Civilian Biodefense Strategies, Baltimore, MD, USA, is skeptical about the weaponized flu. Influenza, he asserts, quote, just isn't good enough agent to be concerned about, unquote. From a bioterrorist perspective, quote, something like Q fever, which is a stable aer aerosizable agent, would be much more effective weapon. It's well known to the biological weapons community that Q fever will go long distance to infect a lot of people, unquote. Influenza, by contrast, might put troops out of commission for a while, he says, quote, but that means the offending nation must have a protective vaccine to protect their own troops so it doesn't rebound, unquote. Even if flu is of a concern to the military, quote, for civilians, it's not such a big deal because people will come down with the flu, but they won't spread it easily and most will recover, unquote. Again, in a new paragraph, quote, I'm a little apprehensive about fiddling with the influenza virus experimentally, but on the other hand, I feel we have much to fear from nature as we do from man, unquote, continued Henderson, quote, do we need to be concerned about it? Yes. Once a pandemic comes, it can move across the world within a year. Are we doing enough to be prepared? No. Producing vaccines against each strain is one approach. But shouldn't be, but shouldn't we be pursuing the idea of a live vaccine that can be developed with a recombinant capability and permit growth in tissue cell culture rather than the ancient system of growing with stiff with the stuff in eggs, which limits the quantity? This concept has not been pursued as diligently as many feel it should be. Marilyn Larkin wrote that article. So I thought it was interesting that they talked about Japan having large stockpiles of anti uh of uh of antivirulent, you know, medications or what did they call it in the article? Uh stockpiling antivirals such as only had been done in Japan it was saying. So I thought that was interesting because I think wasn't Japan like less affected by coronavirus? in particular so maybe they are treating it with these known 
antivirals that work effectively against things in the past. And then also that common, you know, rationale that you'll see used is like, if we don't do it, nature will. And this, this like existential fear of nature and the threat that nature is always going to be producing these viruses that are going to come get us. So if we don't do it in the lab and then have all these major, you know, threats of it actually leaking out at that point <laughs> and then murdering or harming millions of people, uh, you know, then, well, you know, if we don't do it, who, who else will? And that, that rationale is, is what's led us into this position that we're in now. So, you know, it's very interesting uh, to look at and see these articles that were coming back out in 2003 when maybe the community hadn't been as, as much as familiar with uh, some of the research that we are now that we can go look and watch, you know, for example, if you, if you are into watching the documentaries on watching, or you could read or watch the bio sci or, uh, from Dave Emery that I had mentioned, or, uh, my series on the bio sci war. And we'll, we'll go into more of the psych psychological side. We will do that. And we probably will tie that in with the creature of control, uh, research. And we'll go into, more of the psychological components of things but uh, for now we're going into uncovering that there is you know been research ongoing for at least you know 20 years into this sort of idea of, re of the possibility for influenza being used as a bioweapon and then the SARS uh, research that was done on gain of function done to those viruses in labs having leaks having shutdowns having problems and then now we have this story of this uh, sudden novel virus being coming out in 2020 and all, all over the planet, uh, uh, you know, very quickly, as in the one document we saw was a sign that that is a bioterrorism event. And then, you know, blaming the, uh, the Oswald Institute of Virology over there in China, uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology for the outbreak. Um, obviously causing further destabilization in America. And now the bigger picture thing that's going on with, you know, movement of humanity in a direction that it was headed anyway, but now with the great amplifier happening, the globalists really pushing forward and making their move to, you know, make sure that things are done in the way that they want to do them. Now, from my perspective, that looks like less freedom, more slavery, more mind control, less free will, less decision-making capabilities, while being told that, don't worry, you're going to get your checks, you're going to get your food, you're going to get your bugs to eat, you're going to get your 3D printed meat, and you'll be happy because you'll be able to plug into the matrix and make your widgets online for the government and the technocracy will you know, take care of you as long as you're allowing them to do their experiments on you, which is basically the situation that we're in now. We're being pressured to take vaccines that are experimental, uh, which are turning out to just be, like I said, back in um, a video I did probably in about May or June of 2020, talking about how this is software, and that that was called the authoritarian false dialectic. And I got into a little bit of a rant while I was driving along. They're talking about how this is really just all software and how they're you know, looking to put it inside of you. And that's basically what we're learning now with the mRNA vaccines or um, these therapeutics that they're putting out, gene therapy and things like that, and, and are really get, getting into the point where they can program your genes to reflect 
whatever defense they're coming up with, you know, as we we're reading about in that DARPA document last week, was that the idea would be, you know, the threats are so ongoing and uh, invasive and everywhere that we have to have software that can react dynamically to the environment. And so we could use insects to do that, or we could use uh, aerosol agents spread through the air. We could put that inside your body and then program your genes to react to the um, bioweapons, potential bioweapons, right? They're always justifying it by saying it could be a potential bioweapon that the Russians release, right? And it's, you know, the Russian paperclip Nazi guys against the American paperclip Nazi guys, and they're always, you know, researching things to outwit each other. And really, it's all just a bunch of Nazis, you know, uh, doing crazy ass experiments on you. To the point we're at now where we have had, you know, a, basically a bomb gone off intentionally or not intentionally. Like I said, there's no such thing. I mean, just because I'm questioning something, it doesn't mean that it's not real. Again, not saying that there's not a bioweapon. I mean, sorry, not saying that there's not a virus. I'm not saying that people aren't getting sick. But what I am saying is that it's more, um, there's more to the story than we're being told uh, for the most part. A lot of people are questioning things. That's a good sign. A lot of people are looking and not believing everything they see. And that's, you know, and then there's me uh, just waiting to find the information that I need to go through, going through it, sharing it with you. And that's what we do here at TylerBlur.com. Uh, thank you for watching this far into the stream. Just checking on a couple things here as I take care of a couple house cleaning techniques or <laughs> techniques, house cleaning responsibilities over here. Let's get into the next document that I wanted to cover today before we head into an intermission break would be uh, this one, which again, I printed out and this time I will read it on my desktop, but I have it here on the screen and in the show notes, Russian and American use of Yersinia pestis as a biological weapon. And let's pull over here and see if I can get this situated correctly and read this into the record here. This is from Montana State University. And uh, you can find this again in the show notes. And that's my symbol for reading the whole thing. Christian Hale. Uh, this is a an article by Christian Hale. This is a quote starting out. In the city of Kirov, we maintained a quota of 20 tons of plague in our arsenal every year. And that was Kanataji Alebekov in 1992. And now we have another quote here from Orrin Hatch. It says, It is apparent that there has been a kind of ignoring of potentials for harm. And that was Orrin G. Hatch of the Utah Chairman of Senate Judicial Committee, March 6, 1996. By mid-1990, it became obvious that the United States government had a threat of biological warfare. Let me start that over. By the mid-1990s, it became obvious that the United States government, to the United States government, that the threat of biological warfare was more than just hypothetical. Even though the United States and Russia, among other countries, had signed a ban on the development of biological weapons during the Biological Toxin Weapon Convention of 
doubts, dang it. Doubts lingered around the intentions embedded in the signatures for the United States. These doubts were solidified when 19, in 1992, Ken Alabek defected to America, formerly known as Kanetijan Alabakov in his mother country, Russia. Alabek enabled U.S. intelligence to locate and identify major sites located within Russia where uh, that were dedica dedicated to mass production of biological agents designed specifically for offensive purposes. Albeck in 1999. Among the first, among the list, more than 50 microorganisms and toxins designed and manipulated for warfare are smallpox, anthrax, cholera, and plague. Biological warfare agents exist. Among them is one of the most transmissible and deadliest microorganisms. Yersinia pestis. The earliest record of why pestis as a biological weapon occurred in the 14th century when the Tartar army, in an attempt to conquer Kaffa uh, in current day Crimea, reported catap sorry, reportedly catipulated victims of plague over, uh, oh, sorry, I just got distracted here, over gasted walls. That was Cartwright, 1972. Centuries later, the world witnessed attempts of Japan's Unit 731 to harbor plague as a biological weapon as well. In, in 1940, Japanese General Isho Shiro led the campaign to drop porcelain bombs filled with plague-infected fleas over central China's Hunan province. The Chinese government reports 7,643 people died as a result of... As a result, Harbin and Kotelias, 2002. Other modes of possible transmission of plague included flea-ridden feathers as well as briefcases and pens which would aerosolize Y. pestis. When brought to trial for war crimes, senior officials of Unit 731 were released by the U.S. in exchange for information. The U.S. capitalized on the information and gave birth to the U.S. Biological Weapons Program at Fort Detrick, Maryland. So our Biological Weapons Program has a birthing in uh, Japan using biological weapons uh, in Unit 731 and uh, us overlooking the war crimes against humanity and then saying, yeah, well, we could use that information as well. And then us starting uh, doing testing, us meaning the United States, whatever, the U.S. However, as opposition of U.S. involvement in Vietnam grew, an increasing pressure was put on the U.S. president to ban the development and use of biological chemical weapons. As a sign of good faith, President Nixon, along with Russian leaders and other world leaders, attended the Biological Toxins Weapon Convention of 1972, and agreed to end biological warfare as military offensive tactics. Unfortunately, there was no compliance assurance or enforcement associated with this treaty. While the U.S. simply renamed its research program to reflect defensive purposes rather than offensive purposes, Russia found bio-preparant with an annual budget up, up to $1 billion. Russia scientists soon realized that promise of genetic engineering. During the mid to late 1980s, Russia scientists at BioPreparent made a major breakthrough. 
they had begun to upgrade their aerosol of biological their arsenal sorry they had begun to upgrade their arsenal of biological weapons via genetic modification one of the first steps of such modification included making a primitive sort of chimera a chimera is a biological organism which has been altered so that the new version also has characteristics of another biological organism Russian scientists were experimenting with the idea that taking Y pestis and inserting it into various known toxins into the cells. One day, the announcement was made that biopropent, uh, that such a design had been successfully made. They inserted a plasmid containing the, gen the genefer my myelin toxin into Y pestis. The design was simply was simple and disturbing. If a patient were thereby releasing the plasmid coating for myelin toxin, which would cause paralysis, high blood pressure, irregulatory heartbeat, and changes in behavior. Heralded as a major triumph for Mother Russia, Alabek explained, quote, A toxin plague weapon was never produced before the Soviet Union collapsed, but th the success of this experiment had set the stage for further research on bacteria-toxin combinations. Alabeck, 1999. And, you know, this is all just really continued research from, like, Nazi biological weapons research that they were doing um, against probably innocent victims of biological weapons research and other th weird things that the Nazi scientists were doing and brought into Russia and brought into the United States, as we'll have to go into as, like, a conclusion, wrap-up, you know, maybe, like, extended research research. Uh, presentation for the biopsyop. Um, okay, so reading on here. The next step was initiated by De Deputy Director Sergei Nedesov, who suggested putting Venezuelan Euquine acephalitis into Y. pestis. This was based on the same idea of treating plague with antibiotics, thereby releasing something else. This time, however, the result would have to be more dramatic consequences. By the time VEE would have um, lysed from the bacterium, it would have bypassed most of the body's defenses, allowing it to travel directly to the brain. The patient being treated for plague would be dead from encephalitis within 7 to 10 days. U.S. intelligence combined with information gleaned from Russia defectors made the picture very clear. For the U.S., Russia was creating superbugs for the purpose of biological warfare, and among them were supervisions of Y. pestis. Okay, so this uh, whole article I'm going to leave in the show notes. But again, just going showing that, you know, that I think maybe we can... Yeah, again, it just th this goes on to show that the U.S. and Russia were like, we're not doing biological weapons research. Uh, then it says, even during times when there were main modes of intentional travel, the world witnessed a rapid dissemination of Y. pestis, which ultimately led up to at least three world pandemics. Towns closed themselves off entirely as the word of the plague approached town limits. Yet even with the strictest precautions and attempts of isolation, Plague inevitably found its way into the heart or even the remotest of towns. Quote, but we did not want to be use contagious agents anyway. Sorry. Quote, but we did not want to use contagious agents anyways because of the risk they 
they'd go where you didn't want them to, said, uh, unquote, said William Patrick II, a former bioweapons scientist at Fort Detrick. So he's saying, you know, yeah, and again, like they, what they're saying is we've been doing the research anyway, even though we had this pact in 1972 where we're not supposed to be doing it. The United States just changed their name to Defensive Bioweapons Agents, uh, Defensive Research. You know, oh, well, then we're just doing defensive research. We're not doing offensive research. And, you know, that Russia and America, just like we were seeing um, with Rob Robin Robinson there in that clip that, well, if we don't do it, they will, you know, and if we don't research it, if we don't get the funding, uh, nature, and if it's not Russia and it's not China, then uh, it could be nature, you know. So we have to keep making these chimera viruses that could wipe out all of humanity in labs that have bio uh, safety concerns and that. And then, you know, we'll sell that information and research to China and we'll get that information and research from Unit 731 and all these war crimes and things that go on. And none of this is being told to the average person out there who, you know, is, is just sitting there wearing their mask, getting ready for their vaccine. They, they have no idea about this ongoing history and that this wasn't just something that popped out of a wet market in China. This was something developed in labs and whether it was intentionally leaked or um, accidentally leaked should be the question, not whether, you know, I'm a Q supporter or not because I'm saying this stuff like this is ridiculous. Um, people need to grow up. They need to put their big boy pants and big girl pants on and realize that the world isn't, you know, the way they think that it is in their one seasoned, I don't want to know anything negative world. A lot of people would look at what I'm doing here today and say, well, this is extremely negative. Why are you going into this? This is dark. This is material I don't want to hear about. Why are you reading so much? Why are you playing a 40 minute clip to introduce your podcast? <laughs> and they just may not understand what it is that I'm trying to do. I'm trying to attempt, well, I'm attempting to get this research out in front of other people so that they can a, you know, assist uh, me in uncovering it, but so we can have a live feedback where people are, you know, in the chats and dropping links and research notes and joining the Discord and helping me and looking uh, in the stuff that I'm looking into. If I'm incorrect about something, you can let me know. If there's something that I need to clarify or that I didn't explain well, you know, we can do that. But in the long run, this is important to have documented in several places and many formats where people can consume the information and then go do their own research and, and dive into these things. So if I have a website and I have my content up there and somebody can go click it and download the MP3 and listen through it on a walk, you know, that might be easier for them to get in familiar with this material than, you know, them sitting down and like reading through these like 35 page documents and trying to like do that on a computer where you're sitting there like reading it you know, I'm, I'm doing a, somewhat of a favor for those that don't have the time and energy to do that right now. And then you can come back and continue down the bio war, you know, rabbit hole with me. And we'll keep doing this research and keep deep diving into this information. For now, I'm going to switch into a segment from Grand Theft World uh, podcast episode number nine that was recorded uh, back in like... Uh, early 2021, I think, uh, if not at the end of 2020. And we had a guest on there and we cut that out and put it on uh, BitChute. You can go watch that there. I'm going to pull open my local recording here. And uh, thank you for watching 
uh, tylerblur.com live stream. This is the bio Cywar double-edged developments today. We're just continuing on in the series about four episodes deep at this point, and we continue. We will continue to plan on uh, deep diving into the bio Cywar, and uh, it's very relevant information uh, as to what's going on with the unfolding events today. I appreciate the patience. I know some of this stuff is not all that fun and exciting to go through, <laughs> so. For those that are like uh, lasting into it and going through it and interested in hearing more, I uh, appreciate your special personality type. And uh, anyways, uh, we'll talk to you guys on the other side of this clip. So Adam, welcome to the floor. How are you doing this evening? Can you hear me? What's up, Rich? Can you guys hear me? Yeah, we can hear you, man. How are you doing? Senator. Uh senator um no i'm good uh, i just saw that clip that was funny beep, beep, um, beep, i expect yeah. the smoke to come out of his ears because <laughs> it's like does not compute. i know i know um but yeah actually just have this uh rockefeller biography the institute of rockefeller <clears throat> i was looking for a quote in it actually that showed when you had brought them up in that whole thing about 1917 <clears throat> or that clip that that person was playing I had I had read that they had all um, integrated into the military and became an official U.S. Army post. The hospital, I think it was at least by 1918 or so. And yeah, there were, there was a whole you know bunch of suspicious individuals. Obviously, the Rockefeller Institute is a place, a central point, in a lot of my story. But um. <clears throat> As far as the situation is concerned today, uh, I see major, major problems with this coronavirus vaccine. Um, you know, you have the, what is called immune tolerance. Immune tolerance is a state of continuous immunosuppression where the person is more or less tolerized so that the immune system isn't neutralizing any virus. It's just not responding. But in replace for that, you get this slow chronic disease, also called a slow virus disease. And the damage is still done. It's just at a very slow chronic level. And it's also very incapacitating. I have uh, immune tolerance from the Lyme disease. Um, and so, a lot of what my research shows is that vaccines, while occasionally they may kind of quiet an acute response, will in replace give you a slow chronic disease. Also, what comes along with this chronic disease is mental problems, because basically what happens is that um, there's this pronounced neurotropism that, that happens. and this is like, so your immune system is disabled, right? And then most of the time, the brain has a more robust immune response. So you'll get these chronic headaches, but your brain is, I mean, your whole body is basically just trying to keep up with the pathogens that you're kind of tolerized to. They're still doing harm at the cellular level. They're still choking out your oxygen supply, um, stealing a lot of your nutrients, and I think one of the things that I want to say about 
this earlier, uh, some of the earlier broadcast about ivermectin and, and uh, hydrochloroquine is this is a very key thing to have because with, with these uh, chronic diseases like immune tolerance, it happens within the first two weeks of infection, okay? Now, as far as COVID or things like it, anything that has a uh, HIV-like antigen, um, this, this immune tolerance, also some have called it post-sepsis syndrome. The first two weeks is when your immune system gets disabled. So something like ivermectin and hydrochloroquine would be something that would be absolutely key. And this, and, and they know all this stuff. Like they know what I know most. I mean, Fauci definitely knows. I know he facilitated a lot of like the HIV vaccines, the Limerix vaccine which uh, my source who used to work at Pfizer testified against, they put her in jail for like a year or so on these bogus trumped up charges, took her kids away and all the stuff. The case got thrown out, but that's what they do to people who Is testify. Is that the one who wrote Confessions of an RX Drug Pusher? No. White, white it, cover? It was somebody, I did a interview with her. Her name was Kathleen Dixon. Um, it was on my old website, Operation Open Script which is an older biowarfare site that I ran. Um, I just haven't updated it. I will at some point, but uh, she used to work at Pfizer as a biochemist and she quit. She, you know, she looked into what was called validation of methods to make sure all their, you know, testing and methods was being done right. And she got Lyme disease and that's what got her to start looking into all this stuff. Then she found all this stuff about the vaccines and, um, she was actually the one to teach me about immune tolerance. Then when I went back to start doing my bio warfare stuff, I came across a fellow named Eric Trout. Now Did you start your bio warfare research prior to you having Lyme disease, or was it also the triggering event that caused you to be it, like, what's going on? Yeah, it was the triggering event because, you know, I had, I had interest, I had some interest in it like years since I was younger. And, you know, since I had read lab 257 and all that stuff, but it wasn't something that I was going to devote all my time into doing. It was just kind of like something I like to read about every now and then. But after I got sick and I'm like, okay, you know, I can just go in that, you know, they'll give me antibiotics or whatever it is to help me get better. I'll get better. And then after, you know, that didn't happen. Then after continuous, um, going back in to say, Hey, I'm, I'm still having some serious problems. I mean, my head feels like it's going to cave in constantly. Like there's just so much pressure in my head. Right. And they, they took scans, all that stuff. They saw nothing. I'm like, this is insane. There's no way I could be in this much discomfort and not, they not see anything. And then later I found out why that was these tests and scans are designed to miss these chronic cases because it's not like an acute disease because the acute expression will give the pronounced inflammation they pick up on the scans. But these chronic, you know, low grade neuroinflammation, it's designed to miss that stuff. And what I found was it conflicted because a lot of the vaccines will cause that, right? As a rebound effect. So what about something like fibromyalgia? Exactly. That's another immune tolerance has, has several uh, very signature key things you'll see constantly. You'll get the chronic fatigue syndrome, right? That's because you're, you got to remember the immune system 
is not just for fighting off disease, but it also kind of holds your vitality, your vigor. So you burn out the immune system. That's what the vaccines are doing, essentially. They're not neutralizing when you later come into, you know, because if it, it was neutralizing a virus later after you had been vaccinated, you'd get sick again because that's the immune response kicking on, right? Now it's just tolerized. So it will be present. Your immune system just won't respond, but it'll do, it'll have that slow effect. Now, what you get with this is you get the chronic fatigue syndrome, you get the fibromyalgia, you get uh, the chronic meningoencephalitis, which is a low grade, not like the encephalitis you'd see in like an acute case of West Nile virus where it kills you. That's, that's a, that's a uh, very low, low minority who get those kind of acute expressions. And in Western societies, so many people have these burned out immune systems a lot of people have, you know, immune tolerance and they don't know it. it's chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, meningoencephalitis, uh, arthritic problems, uh, and then also mental illness. Because when you have that neurotropism in the encephalitis in the brain, even though it's kind of a low level, you get mental problems in, you know, in place of that, like neurological pr uh, problems, brain fog, right? You'll have trouble concentrating. That's why you see this explosion in ADHD. That's what they, you know, I had a, um, I was doing great in eighth grade. I had a hepatitis B vaccine. I had all these mental problems the next year, like after that vaccine, ADHD, all that stuff. And they put me on, you know, stimulants and it, you know, my, my life went in a whole different direction. But the good thing is now that I'm here at the point where I am today, like getting sick as much as I hate it, it was like, it, it, it altered the direction of my life. And I found out so much. And I just have to say, like, I have so much stuff that I could, you know, share with you guys. It's just, it just blows so much of the story, like right in the open. Um, the whole thing with immune tolerance, this COVID stuff, it all makes sense too. And also what I found in Lyme disease with that, there, there was always this certain ratio that seemed to be, you know, in effect where a small percentage, like 15% or so would get this acute expression uh, in arthritis with Lyme disease. They would test positive uh, on the standard Lyme test. Uh, but, but then there was this 85% that got these immunosuppressive, almost like AIDS-like diseases where they weren't as responsive to antibiotic therapy and they got this disseminated viral syndrome. Cause here's what, here's what happens when your immune system gets disabled, all of these uh, latent viruses like Epstein-Barr virus, human herpes virus six, or the whole there, you know, there's like eight human herpes virus. Herpes simplex is, a, is one of them. It's not the STD. That's just number two, but there's a whole bunch of these that reactivate. And when they reactivate, they are considered carcinogens. Um, and that's why a lot of times with these, you know, immune tolerance and chronic diseases, the end result will typically be cancer and cancer-like. Uh, it will mimic leukemia and also people will get certain cancers. I know I've had a lot of people in my Lyme disease group that have suddenly come down with cancers and they die, some of them. I mean, it doesn't happen to everybody, but it happens. Um, but 
but the 85% would test negative on that test because think of it, they don't produce many antibodies. The, the, the immune system just kind of tolerized. And so now we're getting into the whole thing about vaccines and antibodies, being that antibodies really don't, when you generate these antibodies with these vaccines, it's only an initial thing. And once it's taught, once you're tolerized, you just won't respond. How is that different from actually having a disease and having lifetime immunity from having that disease? Chicken pox, as an example, where they used to have chicken pox parties because the symptoms of chicken pox uh, were low risk at a young age and they're higher risk when you're older. So, you know, that was a thing. It worked. Yep. What, what's up? The, what's the difference? Yeah, I mean, we, we have on the vaccine. Well, the vaccine has all sorts of other problems with it because in the manufacturing process, when they're growing it in animal tissues, there's all sorts of these adventitious viruses that also come in with the uh, other vaccine material. Um, you have, you know, foreign DNA from the animal tissues, and, and we don't really know what that does. But then there's things like mycoplasma contamination, which mycoplasma is highly immunosuppressive. I have CIA documents. They, and, and I'll tell you this, the metals they put in there are not just as adjuvants to so-called so stimulate the immune system. They're also put in there to try to prevent all of these fungal and bacterial contaminations that take place. You can think of mycoplasma as like if you, if you leave you know, food out or meat, it goes bad and spoils and gets all moldy or whatnot. That would be kind of a similar thing where the mycoplasm starts growing in the vaccine, right? Well, um, there are all those problems, but to answer your question, see, when you get the chicken pox or whatnot, I mean, we're designed to go up against a certain amount of diseases. So, you know, it may be that after that initial chicken pox, it remains in our system. It is latent, kind of tolerized. But since it's one of these natural things, it's like we were designed to go up against that a certain amount of times without our, you know, throughout our life. And it doesn't have that as much of a disastrous effect. But when you start stacking vaccine after vaccine and, you know, doing this yearly, like things with influenza there's no reason to continuously get, get your free flu shot at every pharmacy i, I know it's ridiculous i mean they push this stuff down your throat and then if and, you ask the question because like the fruit if they're trying to predict what nature's going to do six months or a year ahead of time oh so yeah it's a, it's a betting game and they gamble and what they do and they test against last year's flu vaccine not placebos there's a whole bunch of shenanigans and if you knew about it you'd be like no way but if you don't know about it you're like free vaccine and that's yeah. the difference between people who can enjoy freedom in the future and the people who are giving it up now. H.L. Mencken said that most people don't want to be free. They want to be safe. And I think that's what you're seeing. They think they're safe because ignorance is not bliss. It's safe. And one thing I, I was just about to say, too, was so what I was saying about those metals and those contaminants. I have CIA documents of old Soviet research where they were taking vaccines right? And growing stuff, at using it as a growing medium, I'm saying, just to see if they could. You see what I mean? So these, you know, these preservatives and all the antifungals and antibiotics they put in and the metals and everything, it's no the match. Adjuvants. Yeah. Yeah. It's no match for this stuff. 
I mean, it adapts. That's what it does. It, germs are, you know, they, they overtake, they can pretty much adapt to any environment. But, uh, you know, they were using that as a growing medium. Now, earlier in your broadcast, I saw um, them talking about, it was the Jason uh, Burma's, is that yeah. 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 His clip uh, where that person contracted COVID after the vaccine, Here's something that public health is doing that is extremely reckless. And I'll say this also about the influenza vaccine that they implemented right in the middle of this pandemic. When a person contracts COVID, most people are not going to get that acute. It's going to be a very, very small majority. I mean, minority. If, you know, from what I've looked at, okay, but most people will get this slow. It may be established in chronic infections in some people. I don't know. It, there's a lot of gray area, but I can say this. If you go vaccinate somebody who's already got that, it'll reactivate and it'll, it'll irritate it. It'll cause more problems. So it's, a, it's a, entirely a reckless thing to do to go trying to vaccinate a population that may be riddled with all sorts of different infections and, you know, like implementing the uh, influenza vaccine. I know they did that. They mandated it here in Massachusetts for the kids to go to school. That's reckless. You try giving a kid who's got some kind of subclinical infection like this COVID, like they're talking about, if that's how it really is, that's a reckless thing to do. That's uh I mean, anybody who who really knows like virology and immunology would say that's, you know, that's a definite concern. And I've seen doctors posting, you know, in the comments sections of like, you know, med page, which is which is like a a news thing for for med students. All these doctors are like, man, you don't even know who's infected from who's not. And you're just going to go, you know, vaccinate these people. I mean, it's reckless, but. They're doing it because they're not, they plan on not being held accountable. And that's the same thing that the Nazis did. They didn't plan on being held accountable either when they were doing that. And the CIA didn't plan on being held accountable. And they really never were, even though they had the church commission back in 1976, because they had to yeah. look into Nelson Rockefeller's, uh, you know, assassination programs and whatnot. And right. good. And there's, yeah, there's no liability for these drug firms. None. OK, you know, the taxpayers take care of it. It's on. The, it's There's no incentive for safety. None. And then you have this polyethylene glycol stuff that they're, they're using to coat the uh, little RNA fragments. Polyethylene glycol is a antifreeze. Kind of, yeah, it, it, it's or like no, that's a, ethylene. That's ethylene. No, but it's, it, it's similar, though, because it's like a lipid. Yeah. And you think about it. Lipid is, you know, something that. When you inject, it's like a, a fat soluble encapsulation, like for uh, liposomal vitamin no. C. It's the vitamin C in, uh, I think it's uh, in, in a lipid cat like encapsulation, but it's liquid, so it's now, like it'll yeah, break now, open later in your di digestive system. So they're it putting might be it okay in a digestive system, right. right? But but when you're injecting this into your bloodstream, think of it like olive oil, right? When you when you pour olive oil into water, right? it clumps together and it doesn't mix with the water. And, you know, most of our, you know, blood is a lot of water in it. So the, the, the lipid has a, it's just really nasty. And we saw this with the Limerick's vaccine. This is how I know about all this stuff. 
the woman who started to teach me the immunology, you know, she, this is how I know all this stuff. And then when the, all this stuff came, it was like, wow, I already know all this stuff, but lipids, a lot of the lipoproteins uh, are very problematic and they're hard to make into vaccines. That's why they continuously try. Anthony Fauci should know. He knows this. He tr he did the you know HIV vaccine that harmed a lot of people. He facilitated he did the AZT trials where like no one survived. Yeah, yeah he he's did. not. He, he's he's not a good guy. I mean, it's a merchant the, of death. Yes, and, and Limerick's vaccine was terrible. I have the vaccine testimony. It's and and it it's it's funny because it's a lot like COVID because it two shots, right? And what they noticed, the first shot was pretty bad, right? It wasn't very good, but then when they got that second shot, it they were just laid out, a lot of them. And this is what's going to happen with this COVID vaccine. And you know, I I sit there, I argue with some people that, you know, I'm I'm, I'm friends with, but you know, they think this is the answer. I'm like, no, this is not the answer. This it's is the, not answer the answer for Bill Gates and these guys. Cause three years from now, everyone on the planet has immunity by subscription. And if you can't pay your subscription, they can just turn your immune system off because MRNA, that stuff can be remote controlled with the, the nano bots that DARPA in their paper oh, yeah. says that they're working on, man. And, and now I saw something today, actually, where Bill Gates is now working with DARPA to make nanotech uh, vaccines. And that's something I had posted they just about. Thought of it. They just thought of it. That's, that's something I had posted about because I have the DARPA documents from 1997. I was going to say, like, they haven't been planning this for 20 years. What they're yeah, they I did a uh, to support this. I did a, an article called Invasive Immunizations about BARDA, DARPA, the Oxitec mosquitoes and whatnot, and all of that is in there. And what I said in the video is like, you know, guys, I don't want to be right about this, but it, it's looking like they kind of know that nobody wants to, you know, step up and really get this vaccine. Because a lot of the people that I see on, like friends on social media, nobody seems to want this. There's only like a few people I see. And actually someone who had just, someone got it last week, right? Uh, was showing it off on um, the social media saying like, you know, it's, it's easy to be, you know, skeptical, but I got the vaccine and blah, blah, blah. And then uh, this week, I'm like, oh, she's going to be feeling like shit soon. This week, um, she posted something. Um, I actually took a picture of it. I'll keep her, her identity, obviously, anonymous. But she said, sleep? What's that? What day is it? Who am I? Feeling exhausted. And uh, I would have... If she actually had gotten COVID naturally, she probably wouldn't have exhibited any of those symptoms. And yeah. now she might have long-term immunocompromise. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and a lot of people have probably been exposed to it, and it's like it's mild, but it may be one of those slow virus infections. Now, I think that if, you know, if this thing is going like they say it is, or I, I mean, I know for a fact there's a lot of agendas being implemented and they're kind of hijacking. What's that term? Never, never let a good crisis go to waste, right? What Rahm Emanuel says. Exactly. I think. His I brother think, is a Rhodes Scholar, Ezekiel, in right. charge of the medical COVID response for Biden. Yeah, I have, um, you know, it's like never let a good crisis go to waste. But what I'm seeing is that they're trying to shine all the light on these very small, you know, uh, fatal acute cases where 
it seems like a lot of people are getting sick and, and, and they feel continuously ill. Like I saw a friend posting about saying he had to take seven months off work. People feel exhausted. They're tired, physically overwhelmed. Uh, and I think that may be the larger uh, crisis there. Also, I see people posting about, you know, evictions, massive evictions taking place where people feel like garbage and they cannot pay their rent and this and that. Now, of course, there's going to be all sorts of uh, agendas being implemented. Like for me, I don't agree with any of the mask wearing and, and uh, the, the vaccines. Like, you know, this is all stuff, in my opinion, this is all stuff that is the public health trying to look competent when they're not. It's like, you know, run, they're running around with their, like, chickens with their heads cut off. There's all sorts of people in the know, I'm sure, that, you know, because, like, like, you know, our system has been thoroughly infiltrated, you know, starting a long time ago. So now there's all sorts of agendas mixing into this country. But, um, yeah, it started with uh, the British East India Company and Thomas Malthus about four hours ago. That's what we talked about, the infiltration. Yeah. And, and, and all of my work uh, lines up with that, you know, and it also kind of goes back to like stuff like Wall Street in the in the Russian Revolution. Uh, now. You know, well, it's it's hard when you look into these things not to start getting those those threads of the bigger picture, whether it's Anthony Sutton or looking yeah. in the MI6 secret agents yeah, and some of the definitely. other author interviews that you've done on your YouTube channel. Yeah, like uh, Professor uh, Richard B. Spence. Yeah, he, he, you know, I had which some is great... not the guy who is uh, far no, not right. the yeah. not the white the supremacist now because there's ignorant <laughs> the white supremacist guy. YouTube. There's a guy named Richard B. Spence. Er, he's a white supremacist guy. You know, did all sorts of stuff with that Charlotte. I think he was like yeah, that's big... not who we're talking yeah, about. We're talking about the him. academic professor. Yeah, that doesn't have ER on the end of his name. Yes, so that is. Uh, he's a much older man. He's a much wiser man. He's he was a professor emeritus at the University of Idaho. He covers things like, well, he wrote a book called um, Secret Agent Six 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 about Alistair Crowley and British intelligence. Alistair Crowley being an agent of British intelligence, which he proved. It was in the documents that yeah. He works for us. It was, you know, British intelligence was saying he works for him. He works for us. Don't touch him when he was over here. Um, but then he wrote Wall Street and the Russian Revolution. Now, some of my research shows some stuff with Russia, but I want to be clear and say it's not the same as the uh, whole media insanity that was going on in the election. I'm not political. I think both sides are obviously corrupt, but I don't. I think the the whole narrative with, you know, Trump's a Russian and, and this and that, I don't think that's true. I think more or less Putin does not like Trump. I'm not saying either. No, of but them. he's very close with Obama and Biden and the, Obama and Biden spoke at Moscow university exactly. in 2008. They're cutting deal. Yeah. Yeah. They accuse the other side of that, which they are doing. It's a very clever, sophisticated yeah. piece of exactly. rhetoric. And unfortunately exactly. not many have the intellectual self-defense to call it out in the public, even though they have big platforms. And And we will leave that there for now and let you go discover more of that episode if you're wanting to learn more about what they were talking about there. And, you know, we, we started to uncover some of those 
Russian ties and Russian connections. And yeah, it doesn't have anything to do with the Russiagate uh, whole nut job case thing that went down over the last four years, but rather, you know, the ongoing inter interplay and inner ties between, you know, intelligence agencies having a more a higher level view of the bigger picture so being able to discern what russia might be working on based on knowing you know what nazis or uh, certain scientists that might be over there working on that post-world war ii and the scientists that were brought into america through operation paperclip which you know adam was knowledgeable of john loftus's work and going into uh, a lot of the stuff that he's uncovered i'm currently going through uh, the book America's Nazi Secret, um, the subtitle being An Insider History. Here, let's just, since it's not on my desk anymore. An Insider History of How the United States Department of Justice Obstructed Congress by Blocking Congressional Investigations into Famous American Families Who Funded Hitler, Stalin, and Arab Terrorists Lying to Congress, the GAO, and the CIA power, the post-war immigration of Eastern European Nazi war criminals to the U.S., and concealing from the 9-11 investigation the role of Arab Nazis and war criminals in recruiting modern Middle Eastern terrorist groups. <laughs> That's the subtitle. <laughs> That's not the back of the book. You know, you can read, you could read the back to get an idea for what's in the book as well. But just the subtitle is what I was just reading there. Um, but anyway, that's a different thread to be pulled on. Uh, as we continue down here in the bio war, Adam Finnegan is someone that I reached out to to see if he would be interested in coming on the show. So it's possible that uh, you may see Adam. I think he's working on finishing up a book right now, he was saying, and then he may have some time. He's a busy guy. And uh, again, if you want to know more about that uh, story, he was kind of going all over a broader view there and then he gets more into what he's trying to the points that he's trying to make in that episode on grand theft world but also if i get him on i want to you know we'll focus on the thesis here on the bio sci war and seeing if he has any information that could help flesh that out or just you know get more information from him about uh, his research or his book and we can go into those topics then so today to close out the show what I wanted to do was go into an article here and this article I'm going to read and then we'll go into a closing clip and then we'll continue on next week in the bio sci war and uh, I'll go over a, a quick overview of what we might go into that week. But this article here is called Why and How Governments Creates Pet Disease Pandemic. Sorry, it's been a long day already and a long weekend. How and Why Government creates disease panic by barry brownstein february 24th 2021 and uh, this is the american institute of economic research i'm just gonna read this article into the record uh, it's more of an opinion piece but there's a lot of sourced references and links in it and i you know i thought it was an interesting piece to get into the show today Farmer Johns Hopkins Dr. Marty Macquarie recently wondered why, quote, amid the dire COVID warnings, one crucial fact has been largely ignored. Cases are down 77% over the past six weeks, unquote. 
He points out that, quote, if a medication slashed cases by 77%, we'd call it a miracle pill, unquote. The number of cases is, quote, plummeting much faster than expected than experts predicted, unquote. Because Macquarie writes, quote, natural immunity from prior infections is far more common than can be measured by testing. Macquarie has this good news, quote, COVID will be mostly gone by April, allowing Americans to resume normal life, unquote. Most Americans haven't heard Macquarie's forecast. While he was sharing good news, Anthony Fauci had the goal line moved further back, saying it will not be until 2022 when life will, quote, approximate the kind of normality we've been used to, unquote. Apparently that was Fauci. Macri observed, quote, many experts along with politicians and journalists are afraid to talk about herd immunity, unquote. He rebuked those who mislead the public, saying, quote, scientists shouldn't try to manipulate the public by hiding the truth, unquote. Efforts to hide the truth won't end soon. It's been almost one year since COVID-19 lockdowns began in America, yet many days still bring evidence of ongoing, out-of-proportion reactions to the virus. Teachers' unions refuse to go back to work. Nursing homes extend cruel policies, isolating elders from loved ones. Like many of us, Don Baudrax wants to know, quote, what's so special about the this communicable and dangerous disease that causes humanity to treat it as a deferring categorically as it, it it as deferring categorically from the countless other communicable and dangerous diseases that were regarded with utter blaseness unquote philip Vegas, jose antonio pene ramos and antonio sanchez bayon subsequently referred to as Vegas, in their journal article, quote, COVID-19 and the political economy of mass hysteria, unquote, provide comprehensive answers to Professor Bordox's question. They argue that, quote, people have been scared by SARS-CoV-2 to the extent not easily explainable by their own minuscule risk of death from it, unquote. The article exposes uh, causes of widespread, quote, irrational behavior, unquote. Bagus considered, quote, how the modern state influenced the development and extension of mass hysteria, unquote, and creates, quote, adverse consequences for public health. It is easy to manipulate risk perception, they write, when risks are viewed as unfair, uncontrollable, unknown, frightening, potentially catastrophic, and impacting future generations, unquote. Uh, let me just take a sec here. Um, I'm just going to continue reading on. Sorry that I was been distracted by uh, some really loud music behind me. Um, I'll continue reading on here in the article. You don't have to deny COVID-19 or its terrible consequences to consider why good news like Macquarie's largely ignored. Bagus points to, bias, quote, biased media coverage, incomplete and asymmetric information, personal experiences, fears, inability to understand and interpret statistics, and other cognitive biases, unquote, as factors that, quote, lead to distorted risk judgments, unquote. 
To be sure, the human brain is wired for negativity bias, so mass hysteria can occur without government manipulation, Vegas explains. Quote, there are certain... There can certainly be mass hysteria without the state in a private law society or within the context of a minimal state. This possibility exists due to the negativity bias of the human brain, which makes people vulnerable to delusions. Due to biological evolution, we focus on bad news as it represents a possible threat. Focusing on negative news and feeling a loss of control may cause psychological stress that can develop into hysteria and propagate to a larger group. Unquote. Anxiety and fear can spread through society, through social process and conformity. And then it continues on from um, the, sorry, reading from the article here, uh, how and why government creates disease panic. Uh, one and we're just uh, again here reading f uh, the section in the middle from Macquarie quoting him here once anxiety has spread and the majority of a group behaves in a certain way there is the phenomenon of conformity i.e. social pressure to make individuals behave in the same way as other members of a group in the end there may have there may be a phenomenon that has so-called emergent norms when a group establishes a norm, everyone ends up following that norm. For example, a group decides to wear masks, everyone agrees to that norm. I don't I don't really agree with, you know, how like just natural he's making it seem like all this has been. I I would err more on the side of that this has been driven in a certain direction with a lot of this mass hysteria and stuff. But also it is an interesting study to see how groups behave and how you know, the group uh, psychological phenomenon of this that he's pointing out. Um, back to the article here. Uh, it's just uh, how private property reduces hysteria. Crucially, Vegas points out that without a strong government reaction, quote, there exist certain self-corrective mechanisms and limits that make it less likely for mass hysteria to run out of control, unquote. When even a minority exercise their property rights and ignore collective panic hysteria is undermined quote um, from uh, that person uh, vegas while anyone with sorry what while anyone in a hysteria related to public health may voluntarily close their own business wear a mask or stay at home in a minimal state no one can use coercion to force others who are healthy to not succumb to the hysteria to close their business wear masks or quarantine a minority can just ignore the collective panic and continue to live their normal lives because they are free to do so such a minority can be an example of wake-up call to those succumb to the collective hysteria are close to doing so the minority may be especially attractive to borderline cases so Bogus continues and explains how the example of li other limits of others, how others limits hysteria. Quote, suppose you're that a small group of people during a collective health hysteria continues to go shopping, to work, to socialize and breathe freely and does not fall ill massively and fatally. Having this example, the anxiety of observers may fall. Observers may follow the example and a group of hysteria shrinks. Bogus catalogs the way... Governments increased hysteria and inflicted harm. 
First, governments diminished and prohibited, quote, those activities that do reduce fear and anxiety, such as sports, diversions, and socialization. During COVID-19 crisis, states used their coercive power to impose social isolation, thereby contributing to anxiety and psychological strain, both ingredients that spur mass hysteria, unquote. They explained further, quote, in order to shield against biopsychological infections, the population should exercise regularly and qu have quality sleep, exercise regularly, I think you just said that, have a uh, balanced nutrition and maintain a strong connection with other people. Governments around the world maintained lockdowns and masks during COVID-19 crisis, making it more difficult for citizens to do any of these things. More specifically, social distancing imposed by the government reduced strong social connections and mandatory masks, preventing expressing friendliness and compassion, thereby decreasing psychological resilience. Recently, universities, and that was a finished of that quote, <coughs> continuing on. Recently, universities such as the University of California at Berkeley and the University of Massachusetts prohibited students from engaging in outdoor activities, even though the risk of illness from exercising outdoors is inst instantly small. Inestably, inestimably small, I'm sorry. My uh, brain got a little mushy after reading several hours now of this into the live stream. Now it's only two and a half hours into the live stream. Um, continuing on with the American Institute for Economic Research article, more of an opinion piece, and we're getting to the bottom of it here. Um, this is from how and why governments create disease pandemic in, and we're reading this into the bio sci war. I felt like it was an interesting piece to have here. Um, and he's talking now more about like how, you know, government's reaction to this has not led to like basic things that could cause better well-being in individuals and overall health, uh, mental health, but ha have actually done things that are completely the opposite of that and have had uh, negative experiments, uh, or sorry, negative consequences to that. So I'm just going to skip down here to this section in the article called First Do No Harm. Macri rebuked those who instill fear. Bagus warned the state, quote, may actively want to instill fear in the population, thereby contributing to making of mass hysteria, unquote. Bagus gives examples of a leak of a, quote, leaked internal paper of the German Department of the Interior, unquote, that recommended communication techniques to, quote, spread fear, unquote. And this is quoting uh, Bagus again. First, the state authority should stress the breathing problems of COVID-19. Oh, no. So this is the German paper that they're quoting here and how they could make the, the state might want to instill fear in people about the virus. First, the state authority should stress that breathing problems of COVID-19 patients because human beings have a primordial fear of death by suffocation, which can easily trigger panic. Second, the experts emphasize that fear should also be instilled in children, even though there is next to no risk to children's own health. However, children should get easily infected by meeting and playing with other children. According to the report, children should be told that when they infect their parents and grandparents in turn, they could suffer a distressful death at home. Third, the German government was advised to mention the possibility of unknown long-term irreversible health damage caused by SARS-CoV-2 infection and the possibility of a sudden and unexpected death 
I'm sorry, I, I zoomed in there and then it messed me up. Uh, sudden and unexpected death of people who were infected. And that's end quote from that German paper, which I think I'll have to go find the source to that and where we could uh, locate that. Bagus further explained, quote, it lies in the interest of governments to emphasize citizens' vulnerability to external and internal threats because the state's legitimacy and power rest in the narrative to that it protects its citizens against such dangers, unquote. We might ask the government, we might ask why governments have suppressed consideration of effective preventions such as vitamin D and possible treatments such as ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, as well as ordinary asthma drugs. While treatments were suppressed, nearly 90% of those placed on ventilators died. In his book, The Uncountable, What Hospitals Won't Tell You and How Transparency Can Revolutionize Healthcare, Macquarie shares findings from his research on medical mistakes. Sadly, evidence indicates that when errors are made, few doctors have an interest in questioning such as, how can this be prevented next time? Let's put this all together. This is the conclusion from Barry Brownstein here. I don't know a lot about that guy. I didn't mind the article. I thought it was some interesting contextual back and forth. Uh, he says, let's put it all together. Human beings are prone to negativity bias and hurting behavior. During this pandemic, governments exacerbated rather than eased an out-of-proportion fear-driven reaction to the pandemic, actively fueling hysteria and exacted terrible economic, social, mental health, and educational consequences without providing demonstrable relief from the effects of COVID-19. Sadly, how can this prevent it next time is a question few will consider. And uh, that book that he mentioned here, I've not read that, but it's called The Uncountable. Looks like it's from 2013. That's probably a pretty interesting book to read. And then uh, we were also going to go into what kind of inspired the title of today's episode, this double-edged innovations, preventing the misuse of emerging biological chemical technology. Uh, this is from the Defense Threat Reduction Agency Advanced Systems of Concepts Office. And they go into a lot of this, um, technologies, research, uh, again, the surrounding some of the moral dilemmas, um, there's a section on aerosolized delivery of vaccines, which I found interesting. Um, but being that we've already kind of gone long today, I think we'll have to save that for part two of this series in which we were also going to go into um, Lyme disease. And that could even be, when I say part two of the series, I mean part two of this fourth part of the BioSio series, uh, BioSci War series. The next episode was going to be titled BioSci War. TikTok bio-op, and we were going to go into uh, the book uh, Bitten by Chris uh, Newby and read through several sections of that book. But again, being that it's hard for me to judge exactly how long these episodes will go, I may have to circle back and make room for that double-edged innovations article or just put it in the show notes. Uh, it's an extremely interesting piece. It's it's a longer document. It's like 243 pages, uh, long enough that I didn't really want to print it out as it would be like a stack. But uh, I do have that. I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, again, today was a lot of information, and I, uh, you know, wasn't exactly 
uh, thinking that they would go into this point in the show without having hit that double-edged innovations article, but that's okay because we're doing it live. Um, like I said, in, in the next few episodes in the series, I do want to go more into the Lyme disease uh, and as a bioweapon, and uh, we'll go watch, possibly share some clips from the documentary films Lyme Crime and Under Our Skin, as well as talk about how uh, there were some more recent scandals and things coming out, and even the Pentagon talking about how they wanted to review how the Pentagon, or sorry, um, some House representatives looking to see how the Pentagon might have been involved in weaponizing ticks. And then also further down the road, we're going to go more into the Operation Paperclip and the biowarfare research and um, how that connects into Lyme disease and the Long Island bioweapons research, as well as some more documents and things that we need to go into from DARPA and continuing on with that research. So for today, I think I'm going to call it there. Kind of uh, beat up after this show, stumbling around a little bit, not feeling all that on top of it, but I think it went well. Um, I appreciate the people that watched live, chimed in live, and uh, were able to provide a little bit of feedback. Always appreciated. And uh, this has been another TylerBlair.com live stream, the Bio Sci War Double Edged Developments, going into, you know, bioweapons research, offensive, defensive, you know, just for vaccines, only for bioweapons. It really all blends together and feeds off of each other because, you know, if, if the Chinese are doing it, then we better have a better program. Or if the Russians are doing it, and then, you know, if we've got all that, you know, nature, you got to watch out for that nature. And so, again, that more peeling back the worldview, and that will be further something we'll have to go into as we get into the Psy War part of it and uh, the creature of control and how all that operates. But we've been more or less uncovering, as we've been going on through the series, the uh, military ties and DARPA ties and uh, the ties into the ongoing research and the justifications done for such research and why, uh, at this point in time, it seems clear to me that there was an intentional release of this, uh, this PSYOP, uh, controlled weaponized information pandemic along with a biological agent that was uh, mixed in with the pandemic to be able to uh, s spread the fear of something real and then also have the op going uh, to trigger this greater reset or sorry the great reset the um, the world kind of uh, changing very rapidly into the agenda 2021 um, Agenda 30, uh, United Nations, uh, climate engineering and climate, climate, <laughs> climate engineering, climate change councils and things. They're all getting on board. Bill Gates is getting behind all these different initiatives, which are, you know, really just proving all the conspiracy theorists for the last 30, 40 years, uh, completely vindicating them on all, everything they've been warning about. But because of the pandemic, because of the crisis, you know, it's all, you know, moving along nicely. People are not give, giving much resistance to it. That fear mechanism that they were talking about in that article, uh, quite powerful. And we can see that people will basically do anything that is being asked of them to do as long as it's sequential, as long as it's in a stepwise progression, as long as it's not way too much too fast, you can eventually get large groups of people to, uh, to adhere to what you'd like them to do, to obey and to not question what you're telling them 
in a, in a scientific way at all. Even if you're claiming that you've got the science, you've got the truth, you've got the, you know, the, the actual methods behind you for discovering the truth. As long as you're just claiming those things, the public generally won't look into that. And so their naivety, their apathy, their ignorance, it keeps them in a state of somnolence, is what I was trying to say, somnolence and sleep, where they're really just uh, being led along, and that can lead to catastrophe. Uh, we're currently in that situation now, and, uh, you know, there's nothing necessarily that could be done in the immediate sense other than uh, help your family, help others around you, uh, get to know the people in your community, and build ties and relationships and bridges from there to, to strengthen the situation around you and the environment around you. And, uh, you know, this is part of that. I do a lot of other things that are a part of that. I think I'm going to end it there for today. As usual, I'll, I'm going to add a few clips in the end that are not meant to capitalize on what I just said, or even this, this episode, but more or less the series just going on and adding more contextual information that when people say they wouldn't do that, they would never, you're reaching, that's a conspiracy. Well, let's just con con continue to unfold the things that have already gone on, the uh, experiments that we're already aware of. I'm going to be touching on the Tuskegee syphilis experiment here a little bit. This is actually a clip that I featured in uh, The Creature of Control in episode three, I believe, or it could have been episode f two or three in the Creature of Control series back from 2015 that you can still find on my website if you, on the front page, just click the Creature of Control image. Um, also on library, I've uploaded those, and they're on the website. And then there's also a clip from another documentary in here that I believe it's the VAXXED documentary, the VAX documentary. Um, and there's a, just a segment from there that I pulled into this, and that's... Um, Andy Wakefield who directed that so I believe that's what it's from I'll double check and confirm that but it, both of these clips will be in the show notes appreciate you guys for hanging in here with me in the bio Cywar. and uh, Tyler Bloyer is going to be heading out for today but I'm going to leave you with a few clips and then we'll close out the episode In July of 1972, the Washington Star newspaper broke the story about the controversial Tuskegee Institute syphilis experiment. For 40 years, from 1932 until 1972, the U.S. Public Health Service, in partnership with Tuskegee, secretly studied the effects of untreated syphilis in African-American men in Alabama. 600 black men, 399 with syphilis and 201 without the disease, were induced to participate in the experiment. Nearly all of them were poorly educated, impoverished sharecroppers. In exchange for participating, they were promised free medical exams, hot meals, and a burial stipend. The men with syphilis were not told they were infected and were not treated even after penicillin was discovered to be an effective cure for the disease in the 1940s. Over the course of the experiment, 128 participants died of syphilis or syphilis-related complications.
1972 when the paper exposed the details. The experiment was still ongoing. It incited public outrage over the unethical treatment of the participants, which led to the experiment's termination that November. The following year, the NAACP filed suit on behalf of the survivors. The federal government settled the lawsuit for $10 million. It also agreed to provide survivors and their infected family members with free medical services. I think all many documentaries on such topics should use that music or music like it. Okay, let's go to this next clip here. It's about a 10 minute clip. To hear a little historic. This is a real story of a real fraud. That's the lowest point in my career that I went along with that paper. Deliberate, high level deception of the American people with disastrous consequences for its children's health. In order to give context to the extraordinary story that you're about to hear, a little historical perspective is important. Many of you will have heard of Tuskegee. Dirt poor sharecroppers in Macon County, Alabama, black men with syphilis. From 1932, 339 men were told by the Public Health Service, the forerunner of today's CDC, that they had bad blood. The motive of public health doctors was to study the natural history of syphilis in the black man. Natural history in this case means deliberately untreated. These men were deliberately left untreated even when something as effective as penicillin came along. Worse still, those infected were actively prevented by public health doctors from getting this life-saving drug. Men suffered and died. Women continued being infected, and babies continued to be born with congenital syphilis. A shiny new CDC took over in the late 1960s, refused to stop the experiment. Not until every last man had been opened up on their autopsy table. The experiment was stopped, not because the CDC realized the barbaric nature of their enterprise, but because a whistleblower by the name of Peter Buxton leaked the story to a journalist at the Washington Star. The story was published on July 25, 1972, hit the front page of the New York Times, and the experiment was stopped shortly thereafter. Congressional hearings followed. So unethical, so inhumane was this public health experiment that it led to a change in the CDC's code of medical ethics. Except, it didn't. Thirty years later, the CDC was to do something arguably far worse. Over a decade ago, Dr. Scott Montgomery and I put forward a hypothesis for MMR vaccine and autism. The age that you receive the vaccine influences the risk. This makes sense. For some infections like measles, the age of infection changes the outcome. We shared this hypothesis with vaccine officials, members of the Centers for Disease Control at meetings in Washington, D.C. and Cold Spring Harbor. A group of senior vaccine safety people at the CDC studied it. It panned out. We were right. At least partly. 
by November the 9th, 2001, nearly 13 years ago, senior CDC scientists knew that younger age of exposure to MMR was associated with an increased risk of autism. In 2004, they published, but they hid the results. That's the lowest point in my career that I went along with that paper. And uh, I went along with this. We didn't report significant findings. MMR was declared safe. The IOM has evaluated this issue um, back in 2004 and again most recently in 2011. Um, and you know their conclusion, again, was not just looking at the work that was done at CDC, but with the total body of evidence, was suggesting that um, vaccines and their components did not increase the risk for autism. What Dr. Colleen Boyle, a co-author of that blighted paper, did not tell Congress is that she and her colleagues had deliberately concealed the autism vaccine link from the Institute of Medicine and the public. Ironically, they even received an award from the Secretary of Health and Human Services for this work. So troubling was the fraud that one of the CDC researchers broke ranks. Eventually, he made contact with Dr. Brian Hooker, father of a vaccine-injured child with autism and a vaccine safety researcher. Uh, I received a phone call out of the blue. Uh, it had a 404 area code. So I knew it was from the CDC. Lo and behold, it was Bill Thompson. He had much to confess. I'm completely ashamed of what I did. I have great shame now. I was complicit and uh, I went along with this. Dr. Thompson had appointed me his priest. And when he appointed me his priest, then he started confessing. And we have had many, many phone exchanges. We've exchanged dozens of emails and he has released quite compelling information regarding fraud and malfeasance in the CDC. We didn't report significant findings. Thompson sent Hooker information that was never intended for public scrutiny. From their own data sheets dated 2001, Dr. Hooker analyzed the CDC's results and he found the same risk for autism that the CDC scientists had themselves identified. It's all there, it's all there. He confronted Thompson. He has expressed significant remorse for lying, for bearing data. I have great shame now when I meet families with kids with autism because I have been part of the problem. This week, August the 10th, 2014, Dr. Hooker published the real findings. A 340% increased risk of autism in boys receiving the MMR on time compared with those receiving it later. 13 years and tens of thousands of children later. But as I've said, Dr. Montgomery and I were only partly right. The risk of autism from early MMR vaccination was seen in black children, black boys. Those boys, for some reason, are at very high risk. Consistent with the CDC's own findings, the rate of autistic regression in black children is reported to be twice that in white children. Oh my God, I cannot believe we did what we did. Tuskegee Revisited. Scientist Dr. David Lewis, an international expert in whistleblowing and the detection of scientific fraud, reviewed the original CDC documents 
and the paper they published in 2004. Probably this is the clearest case and the easiest case in which to answer. Is it fraud or is it an accident? Is it just an artifact of the study uh, that we're dealing with here? Clearly it's fraud. He knows that he's culpable for damage. He knows that he's culpable for permanent damage of a large, significant portion of the population in the United States. The higher-ups wanted to do certain things, and I went along with it. Dr. Frank Stefano, Dr. Marshallin Jürgen Olsop, Dr. Colleen Boyle. They knew. They let it happen, and they could have stopped it. Michigan lawyer Alison Folmar, an award-winning advocate for children and parental rights, gave her reaction. Um, I feel, uh, first and foremost, as a human being, you know, uh, betrayed. When you lose your faith and trust in humanity, you know, how, how, do you, how do you repair that? I mean, I don't really know what to say, to be honest. Thompson is very regretful about his involvement. That's the lowest point in my career that I went along with that paper. If I'm not going to lie, um, okay. I've... I basically have stopped lying. You see, vile as the crimes of Stalin, Pol Pot and Hitler were, these men were not hypocrites. Their motives ambiguous or their rhetoric glazed with apparent caring and compassion. These men were not entrusted with the welfare of their victims. Their mottos did not include the words to save lives and protect. They were not running a mandatory program disguised as caring. How many children? How many went to the wall in that decade of silence? How many presidents, Mr. Obama? CDC is, um, uh, they're paralyzed. The whole system is paralyzed right now. And mm -hmm. the whole branch is paralyzed and it's becoming more paralyzed. So there's less and less and less being done as the place just comes to a grinding halt. The CDC has put the research 10 years behind, all right? Mm -hmm. Because the CDC has not been transparent, we've missed 10 years of research because the CDC is so um, paralyzed right now by anything related to autism. Uh, really what it needs is, you know, for Congress just to come in and, you know, say, give us the data and we're going to have an independent contractor do it and bring in the autism advocates and have them intimately involved in the studies. You know, I have a boss who's asking me to lie. Um, you know, like if I were forced to testify or something like that, if, if it comes through legitimate channels and I'm forced to answer questions, I'm not going to lie. Mm -hmm. um, I've, I basically have stopped lying. Yeah, I said I wasn't going to come back, but uh, that did need a little context that I definitely don't, you know, claim that everything that you just saw was 100% truth. There's a lot being relied upon there that are like accounts between people and not actually documented things that you can pull up and look at. Um, now, there is the Tuskegee experiment, which is actually a lot more um, verifiable and something you can look up and actually go confirm for yourself. But that's just giving it another example of, again, the people, they would never do these things. No, they're doing them all the time and they're 
doing them right now as well. And these experiments are ongoing and the, the, you know, we don't need to go into the whole thing of how they justify it even down to a legal level where you can go and learn about how, you know, the, the things that you think that they wouldn't do because I have these constitutionally protected rights. Um, now there's, there's major loopholes, not in like reality and natural law that they somehow have the right to do it because they make laws about it, but they do insulate themselves, protect themselves, um, from repercussions from what they're doing, um, such as, you know, the liability, uh, issues with vaccine manufacturers and companies, and also the fact of how you can look at how the uh, GCHQ and the NSA or the United States and Britain uh, would spy on each other's citizens and not necessarily uh, be saying, well, well, we're not spying on our own citizens. We would never do that. But their intelligence agencies are spying on each other's citizens and then sharing the information back and forth. It's similar uh, kind of fascism going on with the corporate fascism with these vaccine manufacturers and the, the technocracy essentially being implemented is through this techno fascist um, dictatorship, which will, you know, be, you know, as we'll go into with more of the aerosolized things that we talked about in today's episode was to lay out the foundation that the aerosolized research is big on what they do to plan on deploying these sort of a, uh, gene therapy type technologies into the environment without you needing to go into a place and actually get a shot. So um, some of that is more or less just the more of the psy war, more of the psychological and consent components of it, maybe some of the legal problems with actually doing some of these things. But we'll find out from their documents, which I have, I, I've got all the documents, folks, that um, there are things being done uh, to you and around you that Again, it's not like they, they wouldn't do that. No, they're always doing those things. <laughs> it's ongoing, and there's nothing about COVID-19 that's any different than that. So we'll shut the show down for today. Uh, thank you guys for watching, and we'll see you on the next show.